It's on the inside So don't try to understand I think we're ready! Alright, cool. Hello, Jim! It is the Director's Club Podcast. How are you doing, my friend Jim? I'm doing really well, Patrick. We're doing a really weird introduction for this episode. That's because we don't have a guest here to be annoyed. Only oh. listeners, and we can't hear them right now. We Hello, should, everybody. We should be auto-tuned. Yeah! That'd be great. Yeah. When are we going to get T-Pain on? You know that that guy is super huge into uh, Milos Forman. <laughs> Milos Forman. Yeah. Hey, Jim, he how you loves doing? Amadeus Amadeus. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's more into Falco than <laughs> Milos Forman. I know we don't normally start off the show with uh, stories from our personal life, but Patrick, I don't know. I, I, I think what you went through is pretty monumentally wow. shocking. Yeah, you skipped the segue even. Um, no, real quick. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rafal. I'm Jim Laskowski. And we don't have a guest. We're going to be talking about Claire Denise. It's totally free form. Yeah, no, it's free form radio. Yeah. yeah, it's like WFNU up in this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Well, what happened to me? Um, yeah, what happened? Um, I bought a. Uh, well, I got into an accident uh, about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, that was my fault, and so that sucked. But I had insurance money, you know, for after the car was totaled out. Uh, even though I thought I just like the bumper was hanging off, but apparently there was a lot of damage under the tr- car all under the hood. This is all very exciting, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, so... I just want to lead up to the Christine a, kind of moment. No, well, yeah, well, yeah. The, it was. It was kind of a Christine moment. Okay, so what happened to me was uh, I was sort of debating about whether I even wanted to get a car because having a car in the city has just been a pain in the ass for the most part. Like, I just have horrible luck. Um, but I decided to take the money I got from the insurance settlement and to and to buy sort of a old car, 2002 uh, uh, Hyundai uh, Sonata. And uh, so I bought that on a Thursday. And uh, on Friday, I went to work at my pizza job. And uh, I was on California. And the car started accelerating uncontrollably. And, you know, first instinct, slam on the brakes. It's still going forward. I can't actually stop it from the car from moving. I tried putting it into, you know, neutral or park. It would not go. Um, wow. So I'm... Going down, people who don't live in Chicago, California is a residential uh, sort of area near Logan Square. It's not super populated, and luckily uh, for me, it happened there, uh, and it wasn't there wasn't crazy traffic. So mostly, it was me sort of skidding around the road uh, while I was on nine one one, and I was screaming at the nine one one operator, and uh, she was, was screaming back. Like, was it Halle Berry? <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> She had to go find Abigail Breslin she, in the she back. She told of me, truck. "Look, I'll call you back. I have, I have another, I have another high concept '90s <laughs> action movie I'm in right now." Um, no, so uh, I was very scared, obviously, that I was going to end up killing someone or like running through a building or something because I have no way to stop this car. She kept telling me to run it into a guardrail, but there are no you know guardrails; it's just all residential area. <laughs> and I was yelling at her, and you know, after like third time, she told me to run into a guardrail. I said, "There are no guardrails," and she goes, "Well, don't yell at me. I'm just trying to help." <laughs> and I go, "I'm sorry. I'm very scared. I'm going to kill someone." So, if Tyler Durden was your nine one one operator, you could have slammed or crashed your car to a Starbucks. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. No, that would have been my little uh, project. Yeah. Um, okay, so I went about a mile, uh, maybe a little, maybe closer, to like a mile and a half down this road, um, sort of using the brakes with the emergency brake on, and using the brake as kind of like a throttle to control my speed. So, when I saw like a red light ahead, I'd like push it all the way. But when I saw a green light, I would try to make the green light. So. 
I didn't. I had no plan. I had no idea where I was going. And eventually, traffic in front of me was backed up, so I had to actually cut off oncoming traffic to make a turn in order to avoid hitting cars in front of me. Um, so I, you know, I was laying on the horn the whole time. I was screaming like it was totally uh, like the French Connection, where it was just like where Gene Hackman's just screaming yeah. at people to get out of the way, and you don't know what's going on. Like I had to swerve around a couple cars, like change lanes and stuff, uh, and that was really scary. It's like pole position. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it was like pole position. It was like Ridge Racer. It was like nice. all. It's it it like all those great arcade <laughs> runners or arcade, arcade racing games. Uh, it was a lot like Cruising USA. Oh God, um, I played that. Yeah, it's a while since I played mm-hmm. Cruising USA uh, at a, a Fud Ruckers. <laughs> oh yeah, good old Rud Fuckers. Yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, eventually, the, the 911 operator directed me onto into a park, and by into a park, I mean into a park, up over the curb onto the grass. <laughs> um, at which point, I just was, you know, it, it's kind of cold out still in Chicago. There weren't a lot of pedestrians sort of walking around, so I was able to just sort of kind of do donuts in the park. Uh, this is all real, by the way. What I'm like, I, I this is, I, I'm sort of being casual about saying all this because this is about maybe the seventh time I've had to tell this story. Uh, and at this point, it's you know become very well rehearsed to me. But so I'm kind of doing donuts in the park until my car gets stuck in the mud. At which point, I'm finally able to, you know, shift it into park mm-hmm. and turn the car off. Uh, so that was <laughs> that was while I was working, while I was delivering pizzas. Um, and then the cops came because they heard apparently the nine the nine one one operator she like had my actual call going out to cop radios, <laughs> so like they were cops were listening this whole time as I was screaming and yelling get the fuck out of the way and <laughs> all that. Uh, and the cops came and they were just kind of laughing because like holy shit you didn't kill anybody yeah no kidding and the cops didn't really didn't know what to do because they. The, apparently, there's so much bureaucracy in the city. The cops have nothing to do with the the tow service, like the streets, the street and sanitation oh. department that tows cars and stuff. So they didn't know how they were going to get my car out of the park because it was stuck in the <clears> mud. <throat> I couldn't put it into neutral and push it. <clears throat> so, but they, you know, stuck around with me for a while. That was a car. That was the day after I bought uh, that car. Um, if it happened ten minutes earlier, I would have been in downtown Chicago and for sure would have hit somebody hit another car or like driven into Grant Park and like hit a priceless uh, piece of art it happened 10 minutes later my pizza place is near uh, United Center where the Bulls play and everything and there was a Re- there was a Rihanna concert that night um, oh so if shit. it happened 10 minutes 10 you minutes later there would have been pedestrian <laughs> yeah exactly I could have uh, you know I would have I would have made her feel like the only girl in the world who was under a car <laughs> uh, I would have yeah so there would have been pedestrians everywhere and it would have been mm. crazy busy and all this traffic and it would have been super dangerous so, like, it was horrifying. It's easily the most scared I've ever been in my life. Um, uh, but it could have been so much worse. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, so... Did, now, did, did they say what caused this at all? Uh, you know, sometimes just things get stuck accelerate. Like, apparently it's happened to a lot of Hondas huh. a couple of years ago, and there was a recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, the problem is, most of the time when this happens, you can just put it into neutral, put it into park, and then turn the car off. Right. But in my case, it wouldn't let me put it into neutral or park. So uh, I I had to reenact speed. I had yeah. to I was I had to Sandra Bullock that shit. Um, so they need to do a total recall. Yeah, on yeah. these cars. Yeah, I had, to, I, I had to hide inside of a giant lady, <laughs> like a total recall. Where's Quato when you need him? Mm-hmm. That's what I always say. <laughs> I have that tattooed on my knuckles. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's what happened to me recently. That but there's is, good news at least. I mean, you've gotten your money back. Not exactly filled. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, I we had it immediately towed, of course, back to the dealer, and they're they're giving us our 
our money back. I'm not. Yay! I'm not suing anybody. Obviously, I don't think they knew. Uh, I don't. I have the whole. You know, they. I have the Carfax. I have the whole history of the car. This sort of mm-hmm. thing, I don't think they could have predicted or knew. I'm not trying to, you know, get a lawsuit, but. Yeah, so I don't drive a car anymore. I don't have a job anymore. So that I, might be... I think you should sue them and put the system on trial. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes, they deserve the to die, thing. and I hope they burn like Put it into hell. the motor industry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what the motor industry needs to be brought down. <laughs> those, fat, those fat cats making too much money. Um, anyway, so Michael that, Moore would love you. That's what happened to me. Wow. Um, it was nuts, and it wasn't movie related, but it was kind of movie movie worthy. Oh yeah, I immediately thought of Christine. I didn't, yeah, and I didn't kill anybody. No one right. got hurt, so it's yeah. a fun story instead of a sad story. Because I, you know, I honestly think. I think getting into a bad car accident would be better than hitting someone with my car and me being okay. Like, that would just ruin my life. Do you have an airbag? Yeah, I have an airbag. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, if I hit, like, a pedestrian or something like that, someone crossing the street, because it's residential. Like, people just run across the street and stuff. Tell me there had to have been, like, a a woman pushing a baby carriage at one point. Yeah, there's a woman pushing a baby carriage. And then you slam into a bunch of... There were two men men carrying a pane of glass. (laughs) (laughs) I went through. I hit one of those barrels full of water (laughs) that they have on the highways. It was great. Um, so yeah, so cars. That, that was my car. car all chase future, moment. all future cars. I just want to send a message to all the cars out there. Just give Patrick a break. Yeah, no, that's this. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, this came on a. I had a rental car, and that car got smashed into while it was parked on the street. So uh, I've, I've had just no, nothing but bad luck with cars. So I don't have a car anymore. Um, and that's mostly. I actually had to kind of cram for this episode because yeah. I've been very preoccupied with uh, all that, getting all this taken care of. You know them. Stuff like that. So now Patrick can't even listen to the car's debut record, which is really tragic. Yeah. Because yeah. I was trying to, trying to play it and he was like having, a, you know, post traumatic stress. Though I will say, the second I got my car into park and I stepped out, the first thing I did is I went, Who's going to take me home <laughs> tonight? That would have been perfect. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that, hmm. yeah, we don't, we don't get into our personal lives very much, but that was the most fucking insane thing that ever happened to me in my life. So. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. I I don't know, man. I can't get over the 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 bad streak of luck you've had with cars. Again, but. it was kind of good luck in terms of oh, when of course, it happened. Yeah, right? it was like pure luck. Yeah, yeah. The movie Pure Luck. <laughs> Only your face didn't bulge out because you had got a bee sting. Yeah, I like to think of myself as a Danny DeVito type. He was a pure Danny luck, Glover. Right? <laughs> Danny Glover. <laughs> I know it's easy to get them mixed up. Martin Short they was in so pure much luck, alike. though, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That and Captain Ron. You had to watch those back to back. Oh, and Clifford. You got to follow it up with Clifford. Are we done? Yeah. Okay. Cool. We're gonna do the Martin Shorts show very soon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm looking forward to slitting my wrist before doing it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, that's what happened to me. I believe we have an app. Oh my god, we have an app. We have an app. That's that's more business. Yeah. It's uh, just search Movie Pods, all one word. <clears throat> under iTunes. Mm-hmm. It's and, us. Uh, it's uh, Film Jive, Film Junk, Row 3 Cinecast, The Mammo Cast. Yeah, it's sort of your yeah. one-stop shop. You get to you get to listen to nine straight hours of people talking about Spring Breakers if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't even seen it yet, so we have to do that. But no, I think it's really great because uh, you can stream all these movie podcasts right from your device and you can download the episodes directly in there. You can create a favorites list which can pretty much just serve as your playlist too. Um, so my good friend Art Mays, who um, 
He's uh, basically become kind of a you know an app designer of sorts. It's kind of been his side project, aside from being a lawyer. <laughs> so he's doing really well, sort of just creating all these interesting apps and coming with ideas. And he sort of wanted to collaborate on a project. And I said, how about a, an app for movie podcasts? And uh, we can always add more podcasts to it. Yeah. And uh, it's it's really good so far. I mean, obviously, the first version could still have some tweaks and bugs, possibly. Uh, that's been known to happen, but it's very easy for him to update a newer version. So hopefully yeah, so everybody exciting. that wants to try it out, all you have to really do is go to the App Store and iTunes and uh, type in Movie Pods, all one word, and it comes up and it's free. Mm-hmm. Can't beat that. Yeah. yeah. I, I got a flip phone. I, I don't, I, my phone doesn't even have a keyboard. I still got to use the numbers. So uh, You still have the Motorola Razor? No. <laughs> I, I, my Motorola Razor is nicer than the phone I have right now, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. I actually. Oh yeah, I don't. I like the big buttons. I can't. I don't have the motor functions for a touch. You screen. like big buttons, and you cannot lie. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm going. I'm becoming a hack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a. That was an. Off that's air, a callback. That was an off air callback to an off air conversation. Yep. Anyway, uh, I believe that's all the business. Um, I'm going to be updating on the website more. Just sort of you know, kind of Tumblr style short mm-hmm. posts of mm-hmm. interesting videos I found. And that's cool. Stuff like that. So if you are on Tumblr, go ahead and follow our website. Get all that. Get the new episode. Get the yeah. new episodes. You get all Gabe Powers articles, which uh, he's going to be doing a lot more of those. I just, uh, I just, nice. uh, I just sent some cash his way, so he, he, he better be doing it. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Gabe. Send him you some Roseanne cash. Yeah, yeah. Good. She'll take care of him. Real nice. That's awesome. Um, I, I promise in May I'll write more reviews and contribute. Between May and uh, the end of August, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll hear more from me. Cool. I promise. Sweet. Yeah. It's going to be a fun summer. Yeah. Here yeah. comes the summer from the undertones. Yeah. <laughs> was, Here comes the summer from the undertones. The Boys of Summer. Boys of Summer. John Henley song. Oh, my God, this must just be unbearable. See, we normally have another person there to give us, like, to... We, we don't want to embarrass ourselves See, in front of... at least of. stop podcasting yourself. They they throw pop up, they throw out pop culture references in context with the conversation. At least stop podcasting yourself. <laughs> they're, they're funny. They're yeah. talented. Yeah. Okay. Well... We have our moments. <laughs> we wouldn't have fans if we didn't. They love us. I think uh, I, so. I think all the kids just want just something to do. Please love me. I'm, I'm only doing this podcast for validation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck movies. Um, speaking of movies that what? we can fuck. Oh boy! Fleshlight. The DVDs. Movie. DVDs. If your dick is small and you don't mind the sharp edges. Anyway. Ow. That would hurt. Uh, yeah, no, it would. Uh, let's talk about what, what we, we watched, watched this week. week. Hello, me. Let's watch movies. Like Friday the 13th or Halloween. Things you liked when you were 14. Mega Death or Scream 3. Used to love the faculty. Another horror of the 90s. Looking back, it's clear to see. And you were just an angry team. Watching slasher movies in my parents' basement. Seeing pretty teenagers and their dismemberments. I can't be happy, why should anyone be happy? In summer camp And now I'm taking you all down with me Slasher movies We have a guest that can go first Yeah, yeah we're going to have to fight it out hmm. I'll, go, uh, I'll go first Okay Because I always tend to take too long if I go last <laughs> <laughs> It's true, it's true I go way too long all the time Because I want to talk about everything Yeah 
Um, uh, watched all the Jackass movies. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they're all. I'd on love in, to do that. They're all on instant. Um, and I've, I've always been a huge mega fan of Jackass number two. I think. Mm. I think Jackass Number Two is one of the greatest comedies ever made. Um, I, I think it's sort of a lot like a lot sort of the same way I love Mondo Kane. It's where it's just uh, it is just sort of transcendent um, in the way it's edited and the way it goes from something that's gross to something that's spectacular, to something that's ingenious to something that's like a prank to something with a crazy animal thing that something that hmm. looks horribly painful. And it, it like it, it goes between those so beautifully and has a better balance and is more inventive. I, I think than is the, it the other same two. director and editors all three. Yeah, Jeff Tremaine, oh, okay. uh, the creator of Jackass. Uh, Maybe directed this became all three a, of them. more confident with the second movie. Well, no, what here's what happened because the first one I'd, I'd only seen once um, and. You've a only lot of seen people, once. That, there's no, a lot more movies than once. Well, no, no. I, uh, I've only, I only saw it the one time on DVD a while back. Oh, okay. Um, and a lot of people I know think that Jackass number one is better than two. And I'm one of those people, but I haven't rewatched them since I've seen them in the theater. So yeah, it's um, possible. I think, and it was just so fresh and no. That that is the thing. Jackass number one at the time must have been just a mind-blowing experience in theater because yeah, it was. Jackass was already kind of weird and boundary-pushing um, on television, but like un- freed from the constraints of television, you didn't just have swearing. You had stuff that was right. a lot grosser and was pushing, pushing the boundaries a lot harder. And so the leap from television to film was a huge deal. It's sort of the same way that I kind of feel... I think I don't think it is... I think they also came out around the same time. I think the way that, like, South Park movie was a huge deal when it came out because mm. it was like, holy shit, they're saying fuck and mm-hmm. it's crazy and it's feature length and there's all those songs and stuff. And you go back now and it's not quite – and it's still not quite as good as later seasons of South Park when mm-hmm. they were really – I mean, in my opinion. But I didn't watch Jackass, the TV show, actually. Oh, no. And so seeing the movie was – you know, I'm, I'm pretty much watching these – characters That's, for the first time. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> and then you have the, you know, the, theater experience. Here's the thing everybody. about here's the thing about Jackass the movie. It's really beholden to the show. They really mm-hmm. weren't thinking big yet. There there's a lot of prank stuff, which some people really like the prank stuff. I don't think they're particularly good. Like some of their pranks are really great. I and like then, the old man makeup. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the old man makeup, which is in all three of them, I believe. Yeah. Um it's Spike Jones. Spike Spike Jones is the yeah. old woman is in more prominently in two. Mm-hmm. Um but I think in general a lot of their pranks are just how uncomfortable can we make someone and they're not like the thing I love about Jackass is it's actually they're very similar to Buster Keaton they're actually very inventive and they're thinking of stunts and they're thinking of gags and they're thinking of like okay now what can we do to take this to the next level how can we subvert it one step further and how can and they have the costumes and there's this pageantry and it's really actually brilliant Mm -hmm. when they do it when they do it well and I think that's more in the later movies when they were sort of freed from the idea of a television show, they were just saying, uh, they were just able to go, look, we have a film budget. Why don't we do crazy stuff that we would never get the budget for if we had a TV series? And so a lot of people like sort of the smaller prank stuff in number one. I don't think it's nearly as good as like the Toro Totter in number two when they're sort of all in the seesaws avoiding the bull. That stuff, that's amazing. And the, uh, the there's a there's one stunt where they tie Wee Man, who's the the dwarf, to uh, Preston, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who is the one. big fat guy. Right. And they tie him with a bungee cord, and mm. they're on the edge of a bridge. And Wee Man jumps off, and when he reaches the slack, then Preston gets pulled down. But Wee Man is now bouncing up, and they pass each other. And then at a certain point, Preston gets so far down that he pulls Wee Man down. It was like it's brilliantly conceived. Mm-hmm. Like I really wish, like. 
that Buster Keaton were alive to see it. Like, I think once he stopped gagging from how gross <laughs> and how homoerotic everything is, yeah, um, he would like really appreciate sort of how they're taking. Yeah, I have a visceral reaction to some of the vomit. I'm just, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's not pleasant to um, watch. I mean, I to guess, me, it depends if it's really clever. Like, yeah. there's some stuff like in the well, first, in the first yellow movie, urine snow. Yeah, and, that's not there. Yeah, that's yeah. in the first movie. The stuff in the first movie where it's just like, let's put a car up his butt, and then what? Well, then wouldn't the guy be confused when he saw a car up this guy's butt? Like, that to me <laughs> isn't as brilliant as when they make the guy do act out. Pretend to be a terrorist in a yeah. cab, yeah. and then uh, and then the, His the terrorist is actually like, few, uh, yeah, and yeah. then at the end, it's paid, yeah, like that to me is great because it's mm-hmm. just another twist, another twist. It gets escalated, right. but all those movies are great because they sort of combine that test pilot, like crazy, you know, like almost like turn of the century kind of thing where people were just pushing boundaries and people were doing crazy stunts and that Houdini sort of thing, um, and it combines that with sort of you know Buster Keaton kind of stuff and with sort of skateboarder kind of videos <clears throat> yeah uh, which after I watched these movies I actually went on YouTube and watched some skateboard videos and it's kind of mm. uh, have you seen the Sonic Youth video 100% no that's really good it's a, it's a skateboarding video directed by Spike Jones. I think even Jason Lee might be in it like when he was really young and he was a pro skateboarder yeah but it's it's actually a really good video. I remember Sonic Youth had some interesting videos. A lot of skateboarding, like I just the tricks and stuff, don't interest me. But that sort of uh, punk mentality, that sort of like juvenile delinquent kind of thing, mm-hmm. like I really like that. I really like the idea of like kids in a shop in shopping carts in no. a, in the parking lot of a grocery store fucking around. Like that to me is that to me is just this movie is like hanging out with your middle school friends, and I wonder if. I mean, obviously these movies are big hits. There are women who love these movies too, but I wonder if that's an essentially guy kind of thing that, like, guys would go out when they're, like, 13 or 14 mm-hmm. uh, and just be like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's just see what we can do. And let's then like, And then, like, oh, let's climb on top of the this, this shed, and then we get yelled at for climbing on top of the shed, and then we, like, and then we like break a shingle off the shed, and then we keep the... And then, like, when you graduate from high school and you're, like, moving to college and you clear it, you find that shingle, and you're like, holy shit, you know? Like, that's... Yeah. Like, these movies are incredibly potent with kind of pathos and stuff because they sort of capture that. Um, and... I, they t- yeah, they sort of tap into that sort of instinctual male psyche in some yeah, weird way. and it's the bonding between them that oh, makes sure. the movie so good. It's the fact, it's not that someone is being hurt, it's that everyone else is laughing yeah, and, having cheering, a good time and cheering them on. Right, right, right. Like, the guy who is doing the crazy thing that he gets incredibly injured during, like, mm-hmm. that guy is not having a great time, but everyone else is having a blast, and that's why he's doing it. And it's, oh, right. it's it's fantastic. And I think, and I didn't see three in theaters, I should say. And I feel like I almost am unqualified to speak on three because if you don't see it, like some of those things would look like they'd be so spectacular in 3D, uh, especially that intro with all the like, you know, there's like ping pong balls yeah, flying yeah. everywhere. Like, That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And the stuff they did with the phantom camera, the extreme slow motion, like, right. oh, that's beautiful. And I really wish I could see it in theaters. Um, but I, I feel like mm-hmm. all the Jackass movies should be midnight movie staples. I feel like those could yeah, of course. easily I think get a following. Go, mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, those are the best theater movies. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, 
the some of the best movies to see in a theater with an audience is a, is a comedy. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I've been thinking about. I think we've actually been thinking a lot about Borat recently and how that movie hasn't necessarily aged terrifically, mm-hmm. but when that came out, it was just mind blowing. Like it was so transgressive, and yeah. it was like Borat is very much like Jackass. Like Borat is very much where it's like I didn't know that was allowed, and <laughs> and it's and especially Borat as a post nine eleven movie. Mm-hmm. Like that is to me is. It's to me is still the quintessential post nine eleven movie. Like I think Team America is pretty great, but I think Borat Twenty Fifth Hour. I think well, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, there are movies that deal with it more intelligently right. <laughs> and stuff. But I'm just talking about as sort of this this huge uh, nationwide catharsis. Mm. Like the like Borat is so post nine eleven and is so much about that the feelings of that era. Yeah, no, I think, definitely. I think people can look will look back on like in decades, we'll look back at Borat and they'll it will either be completely bizarre to them because it, they just weren't there when it came out <laughs> or they'll see it and they'll perfectly understand what it was like um to sort of be in that weird new world where suddenly yeah. We're in constantly in wars for and like there's suddenly Fox News is rising to prominence and suddenly uh, like there's just there's just weird uh, racism yeah, against definitely. Middle East people are like crap uh, creeping into culture and stuff like that. Like yeah, people can look at it as a culturally significant you know time and place kind of movie too. Yeah, that I never thought of that, but yeah, that no, absolutely Borat to me is that, and I think I think Jackass number two is clearly the best. I mean, some people have their you know they have their they have their different favorites, but to me, there's no question. Jackass number two I've seen like a dozen times, and mm-hmm. I every time I watch it, I just love it so much. It's so funny. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing there's something about Mary in the theater, and the, the that the, was the laughter for that movie was just like insane to where you couldn't hear some of the jokes or some yeah, of the dialogue yeah. right afterwards, and people were like shocked, like, "Oh my god, semen and hair!" Yeah, that was I didn't see. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I didn't see that. I was too young to see that in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents didn't take me to movies like that ever. <laughs> um, so I didn't see it in theaters, and I almost I have not still have not seen there's something about Mary, and I almost feel like I'm well, no, I just feel like I missed the boat. Like mm-hmm. I feel like I watch that movie now, I'm not going to get what was such a big deal because I don't think that movie is nearly as gross out nearly is nearly as gross as some of the movies that followed it. But I do recall that movie sort of being a turning point where hard R comedies were a big deal, right? Um, to the point, I think Kingpin's funnier to the point where people actually like champion stuff like Wedding Crashers. Because yeah. they like because it was hard R, yeah. Like they're I like, guess. and I and that. now every single comedy is just people improvising and saying fucking shit and dick and showing their dicks and like <sighs> now it gets to the point where it's like all right fuck it I don't I don't care about any of this yeah like like some of these like high school like all, a lot of these comedies they're they're very uh I mean they sort of rip off a you know similar style with like they just take the hangover scenario yeah. and apply it to just exactly. wacky characters. I think hangover is like was sort of my breaking point where I actually I like hangover but it was my breaking point where I'm like all right I'm no longer interested in seeing movies that are yeah that are hard are and don't are nothing but oh my god isn't that fucked up and oh there's the guy's dick and this is the craziest thing ever ah! like yeah. All right. All right, we get it's, it. It's, yeah, we need to get back to a more intel. We need to get to more Albert Brooks type comedies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember that era of American history when Albert Brooks type comedies were the norm? That, that never happened. Oh, I wish it were. I wish <laughs> no, it would be. No, it never. Like, In my mind, I was at home just Woody watching Allen, Woody Allen's Annie Hall won Best Picture, but it was yeah. it it was it didn't make as much money as Star Wars. Like, <laughs> well, I had you know I had your VHS copy of Defending Your Life, and I was watching that almost over and over yeah. again at one point. It's like back in the day, 
I used to love just taping movies off HBO and then watching them over and over and over again. There's a, Nowadays, it's like, oh, I got to watch this and this and this from different directors. Intelligent comedy is so hard to do. Yeah. It is so hard to do that it is understandable that every comedy is like, well, it's actually just everyone. It's it's just a series of High characters. Concept or- uh, now, comedy on TV is all uh, it's always sunny. It's always sunny formula where it's just like here's a bunch of competitive assholes yeah. and they're all shouting at each other. Here's a whether bunch it's of narcissists, like, being, whether it's yeah. The, yeah, whether it's the league or it's always sunny in Philadelphia or uh, uh, what's that weekend? Not weekenders. Uh, <laughs> Over time, workaholics. Oh, I haven't seen that. Workaholics is the same thing where it's like, dude, bro, dude, dude, you didn't do bro, dude, you didn't bro, did you? <laughs> oh, did he just bro you, bro, bro? He broed you, bro. Oh, dude, like. Oh, All God. right, and they're just assholes, and it's like occasionally funny. Like it's not a, it's not necessarily a bad show, but just that that aesthetic is so unappealing to me that I can't deal with it anymore. Yeah, you're not a fan of you know asshole characters just being you know uh, cruel to each other just, just for the I'm sake not, of entertainment. I'm not easily shocked. I don't think is the problem, yeah. and there's not a sweet like jackass is a thing that you could could easily be that if it was if it was done differently it could easily just be a bunch of assholes like doing horrible things to each other (laughs) but there's such a sweetness to it that really does just make everything perfect and it's just it's it is just the tiniest adjustment to the attitude in which things are approached um instead of let's all shout and be crazy and everyone's an idiot like if yeah, you, if you just approach it with a bit more honesty and a bit more pathos, which I honestly do believe the Jackass movies and less the show because the show was really, the show was actually kind of groundbreaking as far as sketch comedy goes because it was so disjointed and mm-hmm. it had like it had bits that were like ten seconds long or five seconds long. Yeah, and I love the fact that they were able to have a show that was so crazy and freeform and. Uh, that was just anything like they're like one of the episodes of Jackass like they would just go back to a guy like flinging a you know those like spring door stoppers like it was just a close up of a guy going like that to a door stopper like it was insane that they got that on the air uh, not because it was you know transgressive but because it was so stupid I think my kind of comedy still like whenever I see anything David Wayne does like he has yeah. I still think there is pathos in some of his movies because I think he's being honest and and paying like homage to parts of his life like something like Role Models and Wet Hot American there's Summer. There's no pathos. Is there, do you think there's pathos in Wet Hot American Summer? He, I'm not saying it's a, a summer, bad thing that it doesn't have pathos. He had a, he had a summer camp experience. I think there's parts of it where to you know me, he's trying to get the girl. Feels- like to me, the whole reason, like I, I don't think Wet Hot American Summer is bad by any stretch of the imagination. But part of why that movie, I can't connect to that movie, is none of it feels honest in any way. Hmm. Like none of it to me, it all feels super distant, um, and it all feels like uh, it's not like a loving parody. Like, like that's what I love about Edgar Wright's movies is they're parodies of you know a horror movie or an action movie or something, but they're but very you, loving. Yeah, and you and, come to care about the that's, characters. I mean, that's what's great about something like Young Frankenstein is it's mm-hmm. very loving and it's and it's making fun of the uh, old Universal horror, but it's also very devoted to them. Right. And I feel like Wet Hot American Summer could not like Wet Hot American Summer barely it's even just cares too about weird the, to be weird. It's just and, too it's weirdness for weird's sake, and yeah. that's a lot of people's. I think someone's playing a recorder outside. I wonder if that got picked up. <laughs> I hear that all the time, actually. Really? Yeah. Do you have, like, a little kid who plays a recorder? I always thought it was, like, the ice cream man in a weird... Ice cream man plays a recorder? That's creepy. Anyway. It's like the ice cream man that, you know, doesn't have a A trick. lot... I mean, Wet Hot American Summer is a lot of people's thing. People are really into it, and I respect that. Yeah. It's not my thing, and I feel... I mean, there are... I think there's probably pathos in Wanderlust. Yeah. 
Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't so. finish Wanderlust, but I watched like the first thirty minutes of it. While oh, you're gonna, you're gonna see some of the funniest stuff later. In the yeah, movie. I missed. I missed the uh, mirror scene that everyone yeah. talks about, mm-hmm. but luckily it wasn't spoiled for me. I just know that there's a mirror scene that's amazing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Again, it, it, you know, comedy being subjective and all, but it's still he manages to tap into something where. I mean, I went to summer camp, yeah. and some of the there's some of that weird awkwardness of being there, and all the counselors aren't really giving a fuck. Really, they're just like hanging out. They're not really like, what is their See, purpose? Yeah, pr- practice. Maybe it's that I haven't been to summer camp. Yeah. Uh, to me, it didn't seem real, but it, oh, it's it's outrageous. Well, I know, no, obviously, they're yeah. all characters. I'm not, practically, yeah. I'm not saying that you're claiming that it's realistic, yeah. but. I didn't. Yeah, that's interesting. I never even I never even considered that movie as having any kind of heart to it. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I think I see it in, in spots. It's not yeah. consistent or anything, but it could just be as simple as like, oh, he really likes this girl and he can't seem to get her. And to me, that was. That, I mean, it's like I know they're trying to satirize the that cliche, being like in that all kind the of movies. meatballs. Kind yeah, of yeah, movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But there is. Oh. But you know, there's also a talking can of vegetables, which makes yeah, me laugh. Yeah, Who knows exactly. why? Like half the time when I laugh at something, I'm like, why do I think that's funny? Yeah, I just do. That's yeah, which I'm grateful for. There's some there's some of the state that I just think is brilliant, and then yeah. there's some of the stuff where I'm like, why is this supposed to be funny? But and I find it consistently funny. I, it's just not my humor. Porcupine racetrack. Yeah. Oh my god, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've you know I had the pleasure of seeing Stella alive, and you know telling David Wayne, how do you manage to make everything funny for me? And he goes, I don't know. And <laughs> he said, I, I don't I, know you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he's just like, I really don't know. And for me, it, I don't even understand what I'm doing half the time. Yeah. Like it's, I'm uh, literally, I'm throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. That, and that is, that is what makes the, that, that group, like yeah. that's a Viva Variety or mm-hmm. all of that crazy shit that they've done. Less so Reno 9 run. Reno 9 is a little more yeah. broad and crude and, comes from more realistic, uh, more uh, understandable kind of place, but like that's what makes them so special is that it can be kind of hard to figure out what they're coming from. Right. But sometimes shit just is funny. Yeah. Um. Speaking of funny. Yeah. Al Pacino and Phil Spector as Phil Spector. <laughs> um. This was a movie that played on HBO this past weekend, and uh, I I made it a priority to see it because David Mamet he hasn't directed and uh, wrote a movie since. Red Belt, I think. That sounds I'm pretty right. sure. That sounds right. He wrote a play called Racism. Yeah, yeah. and race. Race. Oh, that's right. Brendan Brendan Leonard talked about it. Oh on yeah, our David Mamet. Right, episode. right. Um, and I'm a huge fan of David Mamet, and I really, really love Red Belt. And I'm curious. To, I was curious to see, like, well, what is he going to do with this particular story? And it starts off really strong because it has that sort of, you know, biting, uh, rhythmic. Is it a biopic? No, it's 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 more of a slice of. Phil Spector's life after he's you know um, convicted of uh, murder. Oh, okay. And you get like a, a long stretch of not really a long stretch, maybe just a, a couple of months leading up to the big trial, and it's it's really almost a two person show for the most part because it's it seems like it probably could have been a play because it's just Helen Mirren and Al Pacino sort of sparring off one in, one another and. I mean, there's definitely great David Mamet dialogue throughout, but I love how it starts because, in a way, it kind of has like uh, the uh, the way the first act of Spartan is, where it's just like um, Helen Mirren walks into this office of lawyers and they're all doing their thing, and uh, some some guys like watching video footage of Phil Spector's documentary or like old recording sessions. One guy is like listening to 
old recordings he did and like looking for evidence throughout all his life in different ways and look like another like guy's like photographs <laughs> yeah <laughs> like back lyric to phil specter going they're i'll analyzing. never kill anybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're they're a- analyzing every part of his life and i found that really fascinating like to be in the law because i always have an affinity for for law firms or i mean well, lawyer just movies. any 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 group it, of people doing what they do well yeah is always compelling to watch. so it starts like, off really like, great like spartan like you said yeah and uh you know jeffrey tambor shows up and he's you know, spitting out a like really fast clip David Mamet dialogue, and everybody's interrupting each other, and it's it's really something that I thought, okay, I, I'm really excited to see where this goes because maybe he's going to take like a really sort of not necessarily clinical approach, but just try and parse a bit like how people are tried and convicted. So it's more of a procedural. Yeah, it, I, it seems I, it it starts off that yeah. way, and it get me got me really excited because that's kind of it, it. It seemed like it could have maybe gone like the social network route in a way of like, oh yeah, this has got the fast paced dialogue and people are really strong and have, uh, you know, their convictions about the case and they feel really passionate about what they're doing. And Helen Mirren, um, her character, I mean, she plays a lawyer and I can't remember her name offhand, but, uh, she really is not interested as much as, you know, like Jeffrey Tambor is like, I mean, he plays the head of the law firm and he wants her to, um, you know, so she was she's been on leave, and so she just comes back in, and he decides I want you to take this case, and I want you to try and figure out where what Phil Spector is all about. And once we get like a half hour into the movie, it becomes the Helen Mirren and Al Pacino show. Like she goes to his mansion, and there's a really long sequence of him him and her just talking a lot. And for me, um, Al Pacino is hamming it up, and yeah. it's Al Pacino. How it's really hard to separate. I guess. Do you? Because are like, you aware of how Phil Spector? Like, I don't think I've ever seen Phil Spector interviewed. I don't know what kind of voice he I don't. has or what he acts like. I don't. Okay, so you can't comment on how close of a portrayal of. It's. I mean, I guess you know. After looking at pictures, he kind of looks the part. Yeah. But I don't know about in terms of like his vocal mannerisms. I mean, at least the people that I looked at a couple of reviews, and they do say that he doesn't. Like, I think even. Phil Spector's, you know, family thought it was not a very accurate portrayal uh-huh. of him, and it's more just Al Pacino being Al Pacino, and like, you know, he has this scenery chewing moments and yelling out things like "They kill men for telling the truth," and you know, just really kind of heavy-handed stuff from the moment Al Pacino shows up, and uh, it becomes very preachy and and sort of like, oh, the system is flawed, and they don't know, you know, they're not really piecing things together right, and. I don't know. It, it became kind of like, I don't know, if, I wouldn't say like David Mamet's making like commentary throughout the whole movie because it does try its best to sort of separate politics and kind of like how people get convicted and, uh-huh. you know, but I mean, I, I was hoping, you know, okay, maybe it's going to be a little bit of a detective story, like trying to retrace exactly what happened that night. Um, but I will say that, and you brought this up as kind of an interesting angle is they, they they do try really, especially in the latter half, to suggest that he did not do it. That was that was the, even though he's that been was convicted. The re- that was the reaction I heard on uh, Twitter. Yeah, which was which was kind of a bizarre. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, they sort of focus on him denying it, but by the end, even Helen Mirren's like, I don't think he did it. Um, and then obviously he was convicted, but they don't show that. They kind of just like. 
once they get together, it really is all about them having conversations. And sometimes he meanders and doesn't really talk about the case and just wants to talk about his life and how self-involved he is and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. Um, it, it's sort of petered out for me. Like I, I started to lose interest in, in a way. And as much as I love David Mamet's dialogue and the dialogue is still great. Yeah. Oh yeah. And one-on-one scenes. I love the movie Oleana, which is yeah. a film version of his play where it's just two characters in a room, practically the whole time sparring off of one, one another. And, uh, we got great actors like Helmeard and Al Pacino, but again, I don't know if, I don't know who else you could have casted, but I just, I could not. And that's something I like thought about, like distracting acting, can really take you out of a movie sometimes. Like, I'm not watching this as... I'm not seeing Phil Spector. Yeah. I'm seeing Al Pacino. Yeah. And it could just be because, like, we know him so well. Like, his, his, his exact... His mannerisms. Yeah. And his ex- his exact persona is, like, coming through the entire movie. Um, and, you know, I mean, I wasn't expecting, like, let's get insight on his wall of sound, you know, because that's not, <laughs> the, that's not what the movie is going to be about. Oh, I really hope that they get to the part where he records End of the Century. Yeah, or the Ronettes <laughs> or something, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think, there, I mean, there is a moment where he's like, you know, you really need to listen to what I've done for for music history. Listen to you lost that love and feeling. And he's like so grandiose. He's like, I'm the one who who brought, you know, black people into mainstream yeah. culture and I'm the one who done this. And, you know, he's kind of full of himself, right. clearly. Um, and that's kind of interesting to watch. Because to an extent it is true. Oh yeah. <laughs> like Phil Spector's incredibly important figure in music and, and just general cult American culture. Yeah. But it does become repetitive. Yeah, it it yeah. becomes like mostly him just hamming it up in front of the camera and not really contributing a plot. Like, there's no narrative thrust. I mean, I'm expecting the big courtroom showdown. You don't get that. It's only, like, 90 minutes long, too. And, you know, you you get to the moment where she walks into the courtroom and then that's it. Uh, you don't... You, all you get is the text at the end to saying me, Phil Spector yeah, did... To I me, mean, it, it sounded weirdly similar... To is it similar to the? Did you get to see the Jack Kevorkian? HBO no, I movie wanted. I wanted to with though. Al Pacino because isn't that also just about a court case um, and just about a man who is be, being misunderstood on trial? That'd be kind of disappointing if that is the case to me. I think that's mostly what the movie is. It's about hmm. his court case and it's about sort of him being wrongfully put on trial and you know like that sort of. It, it sounds very it's similar. So, sometimes, it, sometimes I find that really compelling and interesting. Yeah, no, yeah, it depends on the on the, the story and the way it's done, obviously. But but it's it takes place mostly out of the courtroom and just them in certain rooms having conversations and uh, you know there are times when I love that approach to a film, but for here, it could have just been simple as like ah I'm not seeing you know Al Pacino pulling this off entirely like are you are you generally i mean obviously to an extent everyone's a fan of Al Pacino cuz of all the amazing work he did in the 70s and stuff oh, of but course, yeah. are you a, are you at all a fan of later era Pacino not really not from scent of a woman on i don't know um i mean he did okay in Insomnia because he was subtle, but, you know, he was also sleepy. Yeah, he was mostly... <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought he was mostly sleepy in Insomnia. Yeah, I wonder... Has I, there I been another of, Al Pacino role that I've really liked? Did you like him in Heat? Yeah, I kind of like him in Heat. That was after Son of a Woman, right? Heat was 95? Son of I Woman guess was so, like yeah. 91 yeah. or 3? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like him in Heat. I think there's something where it's like it's very clearly just Al Pacino being Al Pacino, but sometimes it it works for the story, and then sometimes you can tell they just wanted Al Pacino. Right. 
I don't mind Al Pacino being Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. But um, it's, certainly, it's entertaining. It's certainly better than right now than Robert De Niro being Robert De Niro. Yeah. Where yeah. Robert De Niro is, is very sleepy in all of it, where he's just... I liked him in Silver Linings Playbook. I thought no, he's good. he's better in Silver Linings. He has a much better character than he's right. normally given in Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I, I don't know. I mean, again, I think it's not a spectacular fail because I think it starts off really strong and it really got me interested in the material and maybe mm-hmm. even learning more about Phil Spector in general. But that's I, the thing I, about Phil Spector. He's nuts. Yeah. Like, I maybe he is that crazy. Maybe he is that loud. And maybe, maybe yeah, Phil be. Spector, the reason they cast Al Pacino is Phil Spector is just like one of Al Pacino's characters. Like, that, that might that be. That to me is possible. Like, Al Pacino yeah. constantly pulls... Uh, not Al Pacino. <laughs> Phil Spector constantly pulled guns on people throughout, like, the 70s mm-hmm. while he's were like, Leonard Cohen, he pulled a gun on when the, when Leonard Cohen... Right, 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 right. Yeah. The they Ramones, show a quick flashback of him doing that in the studio. Right, the Ramones, when they were recording End of the Century, which is my favorite Ramones album, even mm-hmm. though it's the least punk Ramones album. Right, like that. That's that is that one. They they were sort of tried to leave, and he pulled a gun on them. Reported allegedly. Yeah. Uh, so like he is kind of a crazy, and it might actually. Obviously, I haven't, I haven't seen this movie, but it sounds like it might even have been more interesting if it was the the. It was more about the tension between a man who is crazy and a man who is important. Like mm, yeah, and that that's sort of like everyone's putting up with this because he does such great stuff. Right. I and mean. Than him sort of yelling about being on untru- being wrongfully accused of murder. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, clearly, you know, having Al Pacino in the role is—I I don't know—I wouldn't necessarily it say overpowers it's the project. It seems that way to me. I mean, it plays that way to me, and I yeah. think I wasn't expecting. I mean, I, I knew kind of specifically what was going to happen uh, because I was familiar with the case, so there wasn't a lot of you know dramatic. Wait, like I'm. I know what the outcome is going to be clearly. Right. So, I think focusing on just you know Mamet's script mechanisms that he tends to rely on, and he does it so well because he's a fucking great writer. Uh, it, it, it's there, it's there, and it's you know almost like I'm halfway. Like it, it's kind of like a C plus for me for this movie. Yeah, because more, more good than bad. But yeah, kind of disappointing. Yeah, it, it is disappointing because I, I, I guess I, I have high expectations for a new Mamet movie. And him like bringing something to the table. Uh, obviously, we know where he stands politically, and I, at this point, I think even if it's preaching, he still makes it compelling. Mm-hmm. But I, I, for me, seeing Al Pacino do it for a good long while got tedious for me because mm-hmm. I just kind of go, oh man, he's just being Al Pacino. And I, I mean, again, I don't know, who, you know, if you could have casted somebody completely unknown, if it would have had a stronger impact dramatically speaking but um yeah it was disappointing but i still think you know i'm i'm always looking forward to whatever david mamet writes in general yeah um but yeah no it's it's all right but it's still surprising that i mean it's an hbo movie so it's likely that it wasn't it's likely yeah. it was a project that wasn't put together by mamet it, was it a plays project that put way together it's very by straightforward a producer who goes what if we had mamet do this mm-hmm. and what if we had al pacino act and i wanted joe mantegna to show up yeah so yeah. Of course. Hey, hey, why can't uh, William H. Macy be, be Phil Spector? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. That'd be great. I want to see William H. Macy. I'll watch William H. Macy pull a gun on anyone. I don't What's care. interesting to me, though, and I, I I wish I could afford to go to New York and see the new Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, where Al Pacino plays Jack Lemmon's character. Really? Which is really interesting to me. Like, just the role reversal, and now mm-hmm. he's like, a, a you know, older, and it would be a more subdued role for him. 
Yeah. Again, that kind of seems a little stunty. It yeah. might be great. It but. might be. Yeah, and I I can't remember who else is in the cast right now, but Glenn Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is still probably my favorite play. Yeah. Yeah. It's going. Mm-hmm. It's also one of those movies that I can just put on in the background while oh, yeah. cleaning and enjoy the hell out of it. Ah, it's a perfect movie. Yeah. Yeah, he can't get better than Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have more to talk about next week. Yeah. Well, or the next show. <laughs> <laughs> the next week. Stay tuned. Uh-huh. What are we going to do now, Patrick? I think we're going to be talking about our director of the week, which is Claire, Claire Dennis. However you say it. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Hey there. Hey there, Claire Denise. You're the director. I can't sleep. Friday night and chocolate. 35 shots of rum. That's a lot. Oh, cool. Film so uniquely visual and political. Hey there, Claire Denise. You shoot fast and edit slowly. You worked with Jim Jarmusch. What rhymes with Jim Jarmusch? I don't know. Your movies are not conventional. They're beautiful. Oh, she made some great movies. Oh, oh, she made some great movies. Oh, she made some great movies. Well, let me tell you. First of all, she was born in France. Paris, that is, and raised in colonial French Africa, where her father was a civil servant. Denise initially studied economics, but she said, quote, it was completely suicidal. Everything pissed me off, end quote. She studied at the IDHEC, the French film school, with the encouragement of her husband, her debut film, Chocolat, was a semi-autobiographical meditation on African colonialism. It won her much acclaim and was selected for the Cannes Film Festival and was praised by critics and audiences alike. Other films she made include Beau Travel, which you're going to hear a little bit more about later, which was also set in Africa. She also directed a cannibal horror movie starring Vincent Gallo called Trouble Every Day. The majority of Denise's work uses location work over studio work, and sometimes she places her actors as if they were all positioned for still photography. She's a very highly collaborative filmmaker, saying in an interview that the film becomes a relationship, and that is what's important. So let's learn more about a couple of her more renowned films, 35 Shots of Rum, and when she returned to Africa again, she made a very uh, highly political film called White Material. Claire Danes? <laughs> why, why would Patrick be looking for Claire Danes fans? Yeah. So, Claire Denise? I think so. Hmm. Might be Dennis, but I think it's Denise. Denise. I, think it's I like the, saying Denise. It's the light E at the end. It's like it's, you're saying Denise. You, yeah. As in your you, knees. But you barely pronounce the E. You, mm-hmm. It's Claire mm-hmm. Denise. Mm-hmm. It's, so. so I was what? trying to think of how to start talking about a director I had no experience with whatsoever. Before before you did this episode. Yeah. You, you watched movies in preparation. I've watched movies before. Yeah. I've watched a lot of movies, mm-hmm. um, but I, uh, you had seen White Material, and you were like, "Jam, you gotta see White Material." Yeah, on a whim, I just saw that White Material. This was like 2011. Was playing at the Music Box, mm-hmm. and it blew me away when I saw it. And I've never heard of Claire Denise before. 
I didn't know that she had, you know, she was a very popular filmmaker. Uh, I didn't know about her history, you know. So, but... Well, I'm very excited to point out something to you. What's that? Speaking of history... Oh, that's right. She is, she was the assistant director on uh, Paris, Texas. Which is my favorite movie. There or it's you very, go. I go back and forth between that and The Apartment, but depends on my mood. It is. It, then it makes sense that you like uh, the Claire Denise films that we watched. Yes. Because she has kind of a Vin Vendors. I know. I mean, she worked on this and Wings of Desire, which are my two favorite Vin Vendors movies. In addition to Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. We got to do Jim Jarmusch, too. Um, so... It's really interesting to talk about this first movie we're going to discuss, 35 Shots of Rum, because mm-hmm. uh, it is very difficult, once again, I mean, we've probably said this in the past about directors who really want to capture mood and feeling and do it v- with very little amounts of dialogue and, to some extent, a very very little of a story in terms of art. In fact, I, I think the, the, key, the key problem that we will end up facing in trying to discuss this film is seeing if our interpretations of what the events of the film actually were are the same. Because parts <laughs> of this film are so ambiguous and so... Abstract. Uh, like not and not abstract in a, in a surreal kind of no. way, but abstract in a she uh, simple. Claire Denise employs a lot of elliptical editing, which means like there's yeah. a lot of scenes that feel like they're missing, like things scenes that would be the big moments, scenes that would be very important, scenes that are very important to the quote unquote plot of the film will often be excised because she has no interest in that kind of simple dramatic structure. Exactly, and she wants to minimize that. Like she wants to minimize exposition as much as possible. She wants to minimize. Like, just dialogue that's just rote and functional. Mm-hmm. She wants to minimize all that to the point where, like, his, her films are very feel very sparse. And yeah. there's just big spaces. Oh, yeah. That's why I love... I mean, she lets her movies breathe and the scenes breathe in a way that, like... She, she sends, tends to linger on kind of mundane moments. Uh, and I, I imagine that... And I brought this up with... Um, which director did I bring it up with? Sofia Coppola. Uh-huh. But, like... For me, like this, and especially Friday Night, kind of plays like Lost in Translation, where it is more about just these characters wandering in search of connection, and it's all about these glimpsed moments and this rush of feelings throughout, without like having your basic, uh, you know, A to B to C, uh, you know, kind of narrative with these characters like having epiphanies and then realizing they want to do this and do that. Uh, but I mean, I was kind of hooked in by this movie because. You start off with a father-daughter relationship, and clearly it's, you know, a little fractured because she's growing up and wants to move on, and I I really like, you know, a good, strong parental kind of backstory. Yeah. But, you know, and then we have, I, I always like movies with apartment buildings where people are all living in the same place, too, or... They're sort of sharing the same mood and well, feeling. I, I feel like this. I feel like something that this movie focuses on a lot is the idea of makeshift families. Is the yeah, idea yeah. of the way people come together who are not families, and that's how they interact. Whether and how groups of people who you know interact in ways that are not the typical family dynamic uh-huh. in this film. And I mean, one of the th- other things, like I said, like this is the kind of film where 45 minutes in, you're not a hundred percent sure on what the relationship between all the characters is. Sure. Uh, which is, which a lot of films, the first thing they do is establish who everyone is and how they know each other. And then you get that out of the way and you can tell a story. Mm-hmm. But for Claire, you know, for Claire Denise, she likes to have things be more strange and lingering and it fits the emotion of the film, which is, which is 
uh, like for example, there's a woman who drives a cab uh, right. who lives in their apartment building who has who has in the past had uh, it's implied a romantic relationship right. with the father with the father. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first, the the, the daughter is a little hostile towards her. It feels, and then, yeah. and but at other times, they are you know they're very close, and they 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 feel she feels like a mother figure, and they feel like a family, and to the point where. Uh, you know, I believe it's like when they're on their way to a concert. It might be in the car, or it might be later in the bar. But they, I think, one of them like references. Uh, no, it's after the after the scene in the bar when uh, the guy who is in love with the daughter, <laughs> uh, who again you don't know what kind of relationship they've had in the past. Very they, awkward. They're very. It's awkward, but they seem like they're very intimate. Saying like they feel. They, They've known each other a long time. Yeah. He reveals he's going to move. Mm-hmm. And, like he's just going to break apart the family like that. Like, so but not everything's spelled out in those kind of cookie cutter ways. No, 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 but, no, 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 no. Like, like she's not a very linear director. Yeah, well, but... these, I, yeah, it should be said. These are all sort of things that dawn on you as a viewer that yeah. she will not say to you. They're just sort of, and the smallest bits of insight into the characters turn into like kind of aha moments for a viewer. Yeah, um, and not in a way that feels like it's a puzzle, but just in a way that you're beginning, you're coming to understand the characters. Like instead of telling you who they are in relation to each other, and then telling you who they are as people, mm-hmm. you're discovering all of that at the same time. Because in this film, they're all the same. Who they are to each other is who they are as people, and yeah, the, their personalities are defined by who they are around, and which to me is like very insightful and is. Like sort of the antithesis of like most drama, yeah. most oh, drama yeah. you ever see in plays, in in, in movies, anywhere, which is baldly functional. This film takes the opposite approach. Mm-hmm. This film goes, and so there's that. There's sort of that family unit. There's also the family unit of all the people who work at the railroad. Yeah. Um. There's that wonderful scene, like uh, retirement party for the r- wonderful where the, slash yeah. where the title horribly comes sad, from horribly sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scene where there, uh, someone who works at the train station being retired. There's that sort of family. There's, right. the, I mean, some of her films have rough edges that don't make a lot of sense to me. I'll I'll bring this up later again in white material. I'm not exactly sure what what purpose all the stuff with the classroom has. Yeah, yeah, I can I mean, see it's that. One, yeah. It's like one and a half scenes, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge chunk of the movie, but it. But I guess you could see, see that as an, another group of people interacting as a family of some sorts. Right. Um. I feel like she captures a warmth with her with these movies yeah. that's kind of a it, it feels very graceful and not not like arty in a pretentious way. It's right. more, it's very delicate and it's sort of because capturing never, simple pleasures between people. Never does it feel like in this film that she's trying to say anything about anything other than about the characters. Right. That's who she's focused on. She's not focused on what this says about society. She's focused on what this says about them and you sort of you discover who they are through the most like intimate, small scale, yeah. just the way that they're making food and the way that it feels very grounded in that yeah. way too, and that's what's really and it, it sounds inviting when you're watching it. It sounds a little dull, almost. <laughs> and and to be to be frank, the first time I saw this movie, I did find it a little dull. Um, I I feel this way, especially after the difference between watching white material in the theater and watching it at home. The thing about Claire Denis' movies is her style is so assured and it's so hypnotizing. Just that sort of she's a very impressionistic sort of way of doing a scene where you're not exactly sure where anything is leading, mm-hmm. but you get very distinct emotions from every part of it. Right. Um, it's it's a hypnotizing, and I feel that these are the kind of films that you really need to allow yourself to fall into, and you need to be yourself. You need to allow yourself to sort of be open and curious, and 
and just like really think about what that means and and put yourself like and really empathize with characters. Yeah, like that, don't expect momentous moments of like yeah. you know characters or having realizations, sharp witty dialogue, right. or jokes of any kind. Really, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's 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 great to see a, a filmmaker be such an assured visual storyteller and not rely on dialogue for those moments mm-hmm. where you just you sense it between the characters. It's all about kind of again body language and the way they share these intimate moments together and not in a very explicit way at times. It's very, it almost feels like an introverted movie. Like it feels very internalized for a lot of it. Yeah. And is that going to be entertaining for every single person? Probably not. Yeah. I, again, like, but it's like you're observing, but it is, it definitely leaves an impression. Like I, I thought I found the movie kind of boring and confusing the first time I saw it. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, this time around, I couldn't remember what the plot really was, and I, I thought this time around that I didn't recall the movie. But mm-hmm. rewatching it for the podcast, I discovered that I remembered pretty much every scene and every image, important image, yeah, like they were burned you. into my brain. Like it was definitely, it definitely stuck with me. And there's still some confusion. There's maybe a wedding at the end. Uh, yeah. Uh, what? Like again, I read a lot of I read a lot of essays and stuff that. I think some of the, some of the information about the story of the film is actually coming from interviews with Claire <laughs> Denise more than they are coming from the actual film. Right. So well, the one thing that came up consistently, she's inspired by uh, Ozu's yes, Late yes. Spring, this which is I really want to see. The, this is basically the same story as Late Spring. Mm. Um, yeah, because yeah, I read a lot of interviews because I was trying to sort of uh, get to the get to the heart of this movie, and that's I an Ozu's a filmmaker I'm completely unfamiliar with. Um, I'm familiar with sort of why he's important and I'm familiar with what kind of sort of smaller scale domestic kind of dramas he made but yeah. I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not seen his films so. neither have I but I, I almost feel like you know especially as, as I was watching this movie is she's able to like discover these characters and, and kind of and you're discovering w- along with her yeah. but it feels again I know we bring up this word a lot in some of our discussions but organic uh-huh. and sort of I don't know how much she thinks out each plot point or every like she seems like a very instinctive director visually to where I'm just going to follow this character well, doing this and it's not improvised apparently but. what she does is is she shoots quickly right but she spends a lot of time editing I can sense that and yeah. this is yeah this is definitely I mean she doesn't necessarily follow a strict chronology or it can be difficult sometimes to discern oh, what definitely. the chronology especially yeah. we'll talk about that more with white material yeah Especially uh, at the beginning, I was like, "What that guy?" Oh, you know, white but, material. Yeah, white material is definitely another movie that uh, once you have you to watch readjust times, yourself. Yes, and I think that's important uh, for her films, but they're very rewarding at the same time, and they're yeah. very heartfelt. And she has a very distinct rhythm mm-hmm. um, in her films, and so. And the other thing is like thirty-five shots of rum because it is so low-key and because it is so organic and naturalistic. And impressionistic, it sort of feels like a more real depiction of life in a city in in, yeah. the, in this era of a city than any other movie I've kind I've really like seen. An urban lifestyle, yeah. What an urban lifestyle is like? How much of it is just like public transportation? How much of it is just your apartment? Yeah. And how much of it and like what it's like to live in an apartment and what it's like to have neighbors that you know and. Mm-hmm. You know, like people leaving bicycles in the stairwell, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. Like, 
it's interesting to see this world you know, in I, like, France. I really, and, it really feels like you visited Paris right. after you've seen this. And not in a glamorous Woody Allen I mean, in Paris, Paris right. kind of way, but in yeah. a, you know, this is the anti-Manhattan. Where mm-hmm. this is... This not is, glamorizing. It feels it. like you lived in Paris for for a month or yeah. whatever. Like there's, you know, the, the, the apartments are kind of gray and dark and, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily like in an off-putting way. Right, no, it's not, it's not gritty right. in any way, right. but it's just... They're just very real and lived in, and mm-hmm. I think that I mean a lot of that is she shoots on location in all of her films. I yeah. don't think she ever really employs studios that much. Uh, she's very much you know there's there's little moments of like uh, like the woman who's the neighbor who's the cat uh, she's a cab driver who has the relationship with the father. Like there's a moment of her preparing her lunch and just sort of eating soup and a lot of people eating and. Yeah, very sort of quietly hanging out, not saying much, and it seemed to me like I don't know if there was like a, a an overall sentiment that the movie is trying to convey, but just trying to capture these characters living life as it is. To me, it's there. There's certainly moments where it feels like like work is getting in the way of them being able to fully express themselves I think, emotionally. I, yeah, no, I think I think the key there is unable to express yourself, yeah. and I think the problem, and again part of what makes this a perfect approach to this story as opposed to just sort of an artsy kind of way to do it Mm -hmm. what makes that a perfect is these are characters who are all conflicted these are characters who love who love each other but are but who feel but who feel ensnared by each other who feel Mm -hmm. trapped by each other who don't know how they feel about each other yeah, uh, that seems beautifully I mean, portrayed with the father daughter. Yeah, the daughter, the father daughter relationship is about um, uh, a man who uh, once he once at that retirement party, um, he sort of realizes sort of the finiteness of life yeah. and how and how things are ending and 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 how his daughter is. You know, she's she's growing up. She's going to have to move out soon. And uh, and again, these are all things that no one says. These are things that you just sort of imply. Yeah. Um by by watching it. It's it's I would almost say if you're intimidated by these films, which uh, which you know, maybe you have the right to be. If you're intimidated by these films, you should maybe like read a plot synopsis before you watch them. Um, sure. Just just so you can not feel too <laughs> but lost. At this but though at the same time part of the the joy of these films is just that sense of constant sense Dis- of discovery. Discovery and that sort of vague area and that's I mean a lot of a lot of life is just sort of, what am I doing? Where am I going? Am I going anywhere? Like it's it's a lot. It's a lot less. Life is not plot driven. Yeah, in any of course way. not. Uh, and normally, unless you're driving Patrick's car, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless you have unless you have a crazy chase scene in the middle yeah. of your life, uh, like I did. Like life is not really plot driven. Life, and not as it happens. As you look back, you form a narrative. Um, this it led to this, led to this. But while you're in it, you have no idea what's going on, and that's what makes her film so uh, intimate and so thrilling. Is because you feel like you're living with them. You feel like you're yeah. living their lives. It's very. I feel a very internal sense of composure with these yeah. characters. But it's also thank goodness it's not like we have those. Uh, you know, voiceover. This is what this character is thinking. Right, right, yeah. Because you're allowed to fill it in. There's no distance between you and the. It's it's almost a little similar to uh, to John Cassavetes' films, mm-hmm. though John Cassavetes' films are a lot more dramatic and, and confrontational. You know, Confrontation, yeah. like this is this is about life when super dramatic things aren't going on. But uh, and what makes that not boring is just and like somewhere for Patrick. Right. Well, no, yeah. no, that's and that's that's what I'm bringing up is. Because you can say, well, life is like that. doesn't necessarily make it good. What makes it good is that it's done so capably. It's done with such a distinct style. 
Um, she's such an auteur and with such a distinct way of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think even more so in films like White Material or I saw her 1999 film Beau Travail. Like those films are very stylistic. Yeah, and yet you still have incredibly memorable um, exchanges between the characters, but certainly the uh, the um, when the Commodore's night shift song starts playing, oh, yeah, that's... it feels like an intimacy between the music playing That's and the characters much, it, coming it, together. Yeah, the, the climax of the film happens about halfway through. Yeah. And it, there's no dialogue. There's mm-hmm. it's it's the big epiphany though. It's when everyone sort of realigns. Right. Um and it's just mm-hmm. portrayed through um people at, after hours after a bar is closed. But they've been let into. And the I love bar. we can observe these like this cur- oh, that's these the other, current that's the of other, emotions. I, I was trying to remember that's the other family that sort of makes shift. Is oh, the way that yeah. the bar the the owner of the bar sort of lets them in and right. just sort of says. Because what happens is their car breaks down on the way to a concert, and after their car gets towed, they have no way to get back home. Yeah, so they'll hang out at the bar. They'll hang out at the bar, and they end up spending the night, and it's just this sort of makeshift family. And I think that it's really insightful. Mm -hmm. And I think what it's, you know, it talks about what is less, you know, and it's it actually does explore that idea of a family. What is what's right. good about this family? Well, it's it's good that they're there for you in all aspects of your life, whether it's work or whether it's whatever. There there are people there who are part of your life and right. are helpful. But what's bad is they're not as dependable necessarily. Um but then if something is too dependable like the father and daughter relationship, then it then it becomes unhealthy. It can, yeah. Yeah, and so there there needs to be a breaking point and that breaking point can be sad and mm-hmm. you know, at the end Again, whether or not the daughter is getting married to the guy, to the guy who is her neighbor, right? Like that to me, I I read a lot of things saying that is what happens. Like in a lot of reviews and essays, I didn't. It's again, it's hmm. so ambiguous. It's yeah. hard to see, and I I have a feeling that a lot of that. Just Did they really from, build up to that? No, they didn't. Well, that's that's the other part of her elliptical editing is there's yeah. no part. There is no scene where the. There's the scene where the daughter sort of coldly rejects and not rejects him in any meaningful way, mm-hmm. but just coldly doesn't respond to his advances, and then he moves away. Right. But then later you see her in a wedding dress and him in a tuxedo, hmm. and there's a celebration going on. So you like the scene that most, and this this happens even more pointedly, I think, in White Material. But but this is a sort of a Claire Denny uh, trademark is the scene that you most expect. Uh, to be the big clone, like anyone who's writing this story goes, and then here's the big moment where blank, like she <laughs> she skips all that because she's not interested in a typical cliches of storytelling. Like right. she want she very specifically wants to bypass anything that feels like a movie. Yeah, I mean she's again interested in glances that we share. Yeah, and the, the I guess the moments we tend to discard. You know, and kind of like most filmmakers would think, let's focus on the uh-huh. dramatic impact and you know having the sort of conventional um, approaches to telling a dramatic story. Right. But it's almost like she's more interested in the, the space between those moments and what leads to those moments. And again, there's also this lack of pretense, mm-hmm. which which is something that I will say, like, that's what puts me off something like Somewhere. Right. It, you know, and I and you did compare Coppola, and I can definitely see Coppola being influenced by Claire Nays. I don't yeah. think Coppola is nearly as good as just letting things speak for themselves. I think I mean if Claire Denise made Lost in Translation, you would never see Bill Murray run run to Scarlett Johansson. There would just be a scene later where he talks no, about it. Like, yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense. You know, like like part of what makes Claire Maybe Denise more so Marie remarkable. Antoinette, I think. I think there's a lot more. There's there seems to be less story driven kind of uh, no absolutely. Hollywood moments. I absolutely agree with you that Marie that, Antoinette, uh, Sophia, because. 
because uh, Claire Denise, uh, she sort of hit the scene in the late 80s with uh, Chocolat, which was nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Not the Johnny Depp, Jul- Juliette Binoche movie. That right, was, yeah, yeah, that was a different uh, film. Right. So, so like, she's been around a while, and I can definitely see her influencing uh, Sofia Coppola. Right. Um, but I'm saying, like, what, what I think would put Claire Denise over the top is just she's so assured as a filmmaker, and she's so not concerned about making a statement or about giving you what you want. Mm-hmm. She's just concerned about sort of exploring these characters. Yeah, and and I'll definitely talk about this with Friday Night. Her movies feel very sensual without being, like, sexual. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think that's what's kind of unique in her storytelling approach is that you get a sense that these characters are longing for each other, but not really in that overt way of, like, somebody, you know, lying in bed and, you know, thinking of somebody, you know, in kind of the ways that we come to expect seeing in a movie, I feel like it's really about um, observing characters, but not in a way like where the camera is like directly on top of them and uh, showing them like going, oh man, I really wish I could be with that person. Yeah. But you can still sense that. I mean, her her, her movies are very intimate in that she, she doesn't shy away from having the camera really close on people. And I think that's it doesn't have like the cinema cinema verite approach like that Cassavetes has, but there's a lot of handheld yeah. uh, camera work. She actually uh, less so in Thirty Five Shots of Rum because it's such an urban movie. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of her films, that she actually actually pulls the camera back quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's there's a lot of longing. In her, her films are very uh, uh, sensual, and it's again like what makes it just so transcendent, and what what makes it different from watching someone living their life to living their life with them yeah. is just the way she makes the film and just the way she uh, edits it and just the the thing the uh, moment she chooses to show and the movement, the moments more importantly she, it's the notes she doesn't play right. which is what they say about jazz it's the, mo- the notes you don't play it's the notes that Claire Denny doesn't play that makes mm-hmm. her films both kind of captivating and, and kind of you know, a little difficult at times. Yeah, I will say impenetrable sometimes. I, I will say thirty. Yeah, thirty-five shots of rum is not one of my favorites, just because uh, compared to the other two films. And unfortunately, her films are not you know necessarily widely available. They, right. She's never been huge in America. I don't believe mm-hmm. um, she's never been a critical darling, really. But uh, I mean, her white material came out on Criterion, so that's obviously you're going to find that at a library or whatever. But um, oh, it's on Netflix Instant too. Is it, oh yes, yeah. it is on instant. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, her, she doesn't make the. So I, I I didn't have a chance to watch a lot of her uh, films. I only saw the three. Right. But thirty five shots of rum just doesn't have that extra driving force in it. It feels a little too lackadaisical just for my taste. Yeah. It's there's nothing I would change about the movie because again, so much of her approach that is befuddling is the reason it's so effective. Right. But it's just for my taste. Uh, I don't like it as nearly as much as uh, White Material, and I don't like it as much as uh, Boat Travail. I think she's just kind of looking for the dynamics and like the most mundane moments in life, and I I really appreciate that approach. I mean, you could have called this movie Interiors, yeah, or maybe like the Lives of Others, which is another really. I'm pretty sure it's a German film. Yeah, the fi- the, the, the title the title refers to apparently again. This is something that's never explained. You just sort of have to surmise. Yeah. But it, it's sort of a tradition when something is ending mm-hmm. uh, that someone drinks – they drink 35 shots of rum in sort of celebration slash mourning. And yeah. that's sort of what makes the film so interesting is that it's it's sort of – it's both sad and it's both celebrating. Yeah. And it to me, that's why the title so effective is, you know, drinking 35 shots of 
of rum, it takes it takes that sort of celebration, but it then takes it over the edge and takes it to something that is. It's like feeling melancholy about yeah. the end, but accepting it at the yeah. same time. And yeah. I mean, that's, obviously, that happens with all father daughter relationships. Right. It's not a it's not a bummer movie by any no, means, no, but no. it's definitely melancholy. Yeah, which I like. Yeah. I mean, I like it doesn't have like an explicit, not necessarily genre, but just like an explicit kind of storytelling that you're used to. And uh, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, I think that's what's difficult, too, especially when we describe, like, some other directors like Almodovar. I mean, obviously, he's he's more colorful and bright. and Formalistic. Formalistic, yeah. And, you know, he's able to, like, bring a traditional story and have it have a resolution here. Like, a lot of us with this and Friday Night, not really a sense of resolution. Yeah. Which I don't think is a bad thing. Well, that, you know, and uh, this is actually what's kind of amazing about her films is the ending almost always, like, what happens is it'll just cut to black and it'll show end credits. Yeah. And it always... Yeah, and all three of her films I've watched, the end, the end credits always come as a surprise, mm-hmm. and they always. But at the same time, they never. The movie never feels incomplete. Yeah, I mean, you feel satisfied when it's yeah, over. Yeah, it's always satisfying, but at the same time, it's surprising. And, and not that to is, mention, that is like all the weird... three three movies I watch are under a hundred minutes or close. to Yeah, they're all hundred uh, white materials and uh, thirty five shots around both a hundred minutes. And yeah. I think uh, Bo Travail is like maybe a hundred. Five or something like yeah, they're both they're she all about that like stay or welcome. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but, you know, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's it always it's always surprising when the, when the end comes. Uh, uh, and also, I like I like her little touch that her credits always look a little different and weird. Yeah. Um, particularly the end credits of Beau Travail are amazing. I posted a I posted a little uh, post on our website about the end credits. Uh, I'll talk about Beau Travail in a minute uh, after we talk about white materials but sure. end credits are great yeah and uh, for me personally I'm, I'm I wouldn't say the score is like you know um, always a highlight of her films but I like that it doesn't always call attention to itself and it's, yeah, it's I mean, mostly the, done by this band that I wasn't too familiar with called the Tinder Sticks. Uh, yeah, Tinder Sticks. I, I'm not super familiar with them, but uh, there are a couple of songs I've heard that I'm that I absolutely yeah. adore. The, so the scores are very appropriate, I right. will say. Yeah. Um, less so. Uh, uh, Beau Travail is uh, is based on Billy Budd, the uh, Herman uh, Melville. Oh, uh, oh, I didn't know that story. Huh. And it has cuts from the opera, and those can feel a little bit pretentious, like uh, the opera music happening over something that isn't necessarily operatic. Right. Uh, but for the most part, her films, the the score feels appropriate. I think it's, it feels a little generic. I think a pretty generic sort of foreign film score sounds like mm-hmm. the Tinder Dick score and and Tinder Dicks. Tinder, <laughs> Tinder Sticks score in Thirty Five Shots of Rum, where there's like sort of piano and a little bit of guitar and some droning kind of strings or whatever. Um, and there's no real, it's not really mel- melodically based and yeah. feels a little generic to me, but it, it's definitely appropriate for the feeling. Yeah. I think sometimes just like a basic ambient score can do wonders yeah. for yeah, me. Yeah, that's but true. You definitely like ambient scores more yeah. than I do. And then, you know, it's, what's interesting is like, and I hadn't seen this with a lot of sort of composer director collaborations. There's like a full box set of every single score you know, it's even labeled under Amazon as Claire Denise and the Tinder Sticks. Yeah. And I think it's really great that she's built... Is it built the a... Tinder Sticks? I think it's just Tinder Sticks. I think it's just Tinder Sticks, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, even on Spotify, you can f- listen yeah. to all the scores from the the movies that their music, they contributed yeah, to. Their, their music definitely... Uh, their mu- the music and the films definitely... Uh, Work well together, and they both yeah. they, they they both definitely accent each other. But and it makes me very curious about what their regular sort of uh, 
you know um, pop songs are like because they're it's a lot of it's ambient and sort of downbeat it's, but it's uh they're pop they're pop it, they, it's sort of like uh when you play me one song the vocals sound like the national to me yes the vocals are kind of like the national the the song writing is a little bigger um mm-hmm. like sort of more the kind of orchestral pop of the uh, oh, 60s or so yeah, like chamber pop. I like that. But yeah, a little yeah. yeah, a little more chamber pop, but less uh, less refined than uh, Phil Spector. Say. Oh, okay, good. Nice transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, transition could have come before. Uh, yeah. So um, I, the next movie we're going to talk about, I thought for sure was either going to be about semen or cocaine. Yeah. Based on the title. Yeah. But it's not about neither. No, it's about uh, it's about atmosphere. The white rap. <laughs> <laughs> no, white material. Okay, so like I said, white material. I sort of saw knowing nothing about it. I just saw that it was at the music box, and that you know, I and often I don't have an opportunity to see films without knowing anything because I don't go to festivals. Um, so it was it was a rare opportunity for me to go see it, and it absolutely blew me away. And the thing about white materials that sort of separates it from other Claire Denise movies for me, at least, you know, the other two I saw, is it is unbearably tense. And yes. Like, and I and I almost feel like it's basically the same reaction. Like, this move, this episode could basically be a mirror image of the John Cassavetes episode. Because <laughs> the same way that uh, I have loved John Cassavetes' filmmaking, but when it's paired with a very simple sort of approach, which is to build intensity... Yeah, like an, a you know just a building and rising intensity throughout the film. Like to me, that just makes it one step better. Um, yeah, the, the the tension is just like insane. And and where I and the same way I said I can see myself learning to love a woman under the influence and faces as I gain more life experience and sure. I sort of recognize them as more true and human and, and remarkable in that regard. Mm-hmm. Like I still I still love a uh, killing of a Chinese bookie the best. For me, I can see myself uh, looking back at white at thirty-five uh, shots of rum, and you know, as maybe a father or whatever, and being and realizing how honest and amazing it is. Uh, but at the moment, my favorite uh, Claire Denise movie is White Material. White Material is a movie about a, a woman played by uh, Isabella Hubbard. Hubert or yeah, I we can't pronounce anything. We apologize. It's okay. Look, we can't be smart at everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by Tom Sharpling right there. Nice. Uh, okay, so it's about a woman who owns a coffee plantation in an unnamed African country, which is in the grips of civil war. Yeah. Um, which means it could be any African country, pretty much. Uh, and at one point, she breaks out into her Axl Rose imitation. And goes, I don't need your civil war. Oh God damn it, Jim. Okay, oh, so she does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a kind of a it's a you know it's a it's about it's about uh, you know child soldiers and rebels and stuff like that and the government uh, and how she's caught in the middle and, and it's about sort of post like it's it's more political I would definitely say than oh yeah and and has bigger sort of goals artistically uh, I wouldn't say bigger goals artistically but sort of bigger ideas. It's very personal, um, too, because, I mean, she grew up in Africa. Yes, yes. That one part, important part about Claire Denise's story, which I'm sure we'll mention uh, when we record the biography thing after. Little little behind the scenes, we <laughs> we go back and we record the... Uh, yeah. Uh, we go back and we, we record a little director bio and then plug it in. Um, but, yeah, she grew up uh, sort of uh, traveling to different Western African uh, mm-hmm. countries with her father, and that's sort of why a lot of her films take place there and are sort of focused right. on colonialism and stuff and it's very much about post-colonial Africa and it's about once what happens when the violence gets to be too great and all the white people are leaving and 
suddenly she's a stranger in a strange land and she has no, you know, there's no loyalty to her uh, mm-hmm. among people, you know, among the, the black people who live in Africa. And there's no loyalty uh, from the government. Um, and she's just sort of stranded. And it's, and, but it's a story about denial. It's a woman who is, who will not believe uh, that things are as bad as they seem. Yeah. So everyone else is leaving. She's kind of victim of her, There's pri- a, the, of her pride. The French military flies over a helicopter in a telling helicopter her and it's telling her to get out and she just refuses. She chastises all the workers for leaving even though they absolutely should because oh, yeah. just all the violence that is happening. And in that way, it, what's kind of interesting about it, it's simultaneously a story about one woman's sort of denial of a, of a specific bad situation that she's in, but it's also kind of a denial about white privilege, and it's kind of a denial uh, okay. about yeah, yeah. It, you're you're in denial about what your place in this world is mm-hmm. as a as a white as a white woman who owns a plantation. You could you could be you know you employ a lot of people. You could be very nice to those people. You could be not racist, but whether or not you know whether or not whether or not you treat people nice or whether or not you're a racist. You're, you don't belong there. Right. And you are an artifact of And you get reminded that of that. Like, you're trying to just get into well, town. And the title is called White Material, and mm-hmm. it's and it's a, it's a line that a DJ has. Yeah. Um, and it's just something that is a remnant of colonialism that is to be discarded, is right. the definition of white material. Um, and that way it's a very political movie. But beyond that, because of Claire Denise's style... Um, instead of getting screeds about, instead of having a scene where someone confronts her and mm-hmm. tells her about colonialism, and instead of having a scene where where someone calls her a racist, or where there's a big scene where she reveals she is a racist or isn't a racist or whatever, it's it's feels just like a nightmare. Yeah, a sense of like imminent collapse. Oh my of, god, of character intense, and uh, environment, intense sense of collapse. Yeah. Um, and you know you you see child soldiers slowly getting in on the on onto the grounds of the plantation never ceases to be shocking to me when i see that i know it's a part of that culture at this point but even like in when i saw city of god it's still jarring to know that you know children are put in that yes situation but it isn't about but again Claire Denise does not take the easy route where she tell it's not no. a movie about the horrors of child soldiers child soldiers right. are mere people who are caught up in this thing as much as any, everyone else is and it's yeah. and because she's able to be a bit more uh, impassive in the way she views everything it ends mm. up being a lot more effective than if she had someone saying look at what's happening to these children they're just children like yeah 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 it ends it plays up, out situationally instead you have a scene where like to me the greatest single image of this movie and there are a lot of really powerful uh, symbolism and imagery like I mean, one of my favorites is, is she finds the decapitated goat head because oh, yeah. the the child soldiers have been you know stealing their animals and stuff. And at one point they steal a chicken, and you see a decapitated goat head. So it's clear they've killed a goat for food. Right. Um, and she tries to bury it. And to me, like obviously, oh yeah, that yeah, yeah. No, that's very, very pointed, strong. very mm-hmm. pointed uh, symbolism of of her trying to bury how bad the situation is. But the, to me, the single greatest moment and image. Uh, and says everything that needs to be said about colonialism is there's a when the child soldiers invade the house and again her elliptical editing means there isn't a scene where they just storm the house right. it's just that there's a scene where they aren't in the house and then later on there's a scene where they are in the house and you just yep. have to assume that they got there and that they killed people who were there mm-hmm. um, there's a scene of just a child soldier sitting in a comfy chair and he just has his rifle on his lap and it's just <laughs> and he's dwarfed by this chair and it's just 
and it's just like very much here is here's wealth and here's mm-hmm. privilege and here is someone who's been displaced by this and here is the result. Like yeah. the the movie's full of these kinds of images and that are just really incredibly powerful. And somebody like being practically butchered in a bathtub is not played out like in a sort of dramatic grandiose right. way. It's very no, well, yeah. No one will be able to resist shooting a scene in which child soldiers descend on a white family and kill them. Like yeah. that to me that is just such sensational that's just a sensational scene. Every other director who would make a film of the, about the story, that's that would be the big moment. Mm-hmm. That's when the tinder sticks would go loud, yep. and there'd be discordant, and there'd be shocking violence, and it would, you know... But Claire Denise is different than all that. And the violence takes place off screen, too. Yes. And that's what's really powerful, because it plays out in your mind more strongly. But mm-hmm. I think seeing what her son goes through... Uh, that to me again like I said there are moments of this film that to me just don't fit and don't make sense and the same way that I feel like the classroom scene in 35 Shots of Rome doesn't really make sense mm-hmm. uh, her son kind of goes crazy he, she yeah. has sort of a lazy son we don't know son. why really yeah he just sort of shaves his head he goes crazy and declares himself and he like sort of starts uh, first he's tormented by child soldiers but later he no first he's tormented by them and yeah. then he goes crazy and shaves his head and decides to become one of them and they like accept him, and yeah, I mean that's really shocking, <laughs> and to see that play out, especially after what he went through. I mean, it doesn't it just make a, sense. It's to me. just a result of trauma and like him having a complete reversal. I, but again, there it, it is the sort of thing where it can be hard to tell sometimes because her films are because her films are so sparse on actual plot details yeah. and plot mechanics. It can be hard to tell what in a film is supposed to be actually happening and what in a film is supposed to be just expressionistic and sort of... Metaphorical. Yeah, metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, doesn't sit as well with the rest of the movie. That, that's, like, the one thing in the film that I really wish wasn't there and it sort of keeps it from being a perfect movie in my mind, but... I could see that. I mean, I think it's more like the shock of that occurring and, like, yeah. when he shaves his head and, you know, stuffs that and woman, when they, and that when they all, mouth with his hair. And when all those children are just, like eating tons of pills they find oh yeah yeah that's that, like, a really I'll never forget that's, the, that's it's, something to and see. it's just implied that they killed the people who worked at the pharmacy like yeah. you don't see them kill the people the people who by the way were in an earlier scene when she got <laughs> when uh, Isabella Hubbard got medicine like it's just you just see them the sh- you just see the shop doors all open and busted and you see that they're eating pills and you just have to assume what happened and again yeah. just having the most horrendous sorts of things that happen in this world play out in that manner and right. not in a not because she wants to shock you but because she wants you to know this is this is reality for people oh, yeah. and she wants and it, and again because it's so impressionistic and because it's so it and because it, it's so distant uh, it, it actually ends up making you feel a little close like because it's so objective I should say not distant it ends up making you feel like you're living it yeah which which is what makes this film feel like a nightmare it feels very lived in and you're Almost feeling unlike, a sense of anxiety. Unlike thirty-five shots, yeah. Unlike thirty-five shots of rum, which is where you're living all these relationships and these feelings and emotions. This is you're just living this nightmare where everything is closing in very literally. Yeah, you're. You know, it's almost a. It's almost an alternate version of a, of a Rio Bravo or a Assault of Precinct Thirteen. Oh, where yeah. it's like they're holed up in it's one place, widespread, and just everything. You just feel everything closing in. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Like in, in her approach too, it's like she can make like the way smoke bellows almost lyrical, and I think having I, like I'm so like in shock when I see a movie being able to pull off this sense of tension, this sense of anxiety, and the sense yeah. of dread, and this really sort of vulnerable and flawed woman 
uh, like she looks so small and so frail, and she has she's a, surrounded like by a war. Child's dress, yeah, it looks like on and yeah, and and yet so determined and so physical, right? Like her, I I I got I got frightened by how intense uh, uh, Isabella Huppert gets in this film. Like, well, if you see the piano teacher, you're really going to be frightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah she's pitch intense there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, but you know what I mean, like. Like she's very determined, and the and the portrait of that sort of determination, and that sort of denial, and that mm-hmm. sort of rage, and that because you know she's been abandoned by even her her stepfather and her ex husband, right? Um, which again, the relationships between them, Christopher Lambert, yeah, Mr. Highlander himself, people, yeah, of all people, the relationships between. I remember the first time I saw this, I was unclear on whether or not that was her father or if that was yeah. her ex husband. It is her ex husband, mm-hmm. um, and her father is the oh. older man. The older man? Yeah, the older man's her father. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I... Okay, yeah. Her, or not yeah. her father. Her father-in-law. Right, right. Her Ex-father-in-law, father. I should yeah. say. Cause, mm-hmm. um, and you just... And, of course, there's just images of the, the the rebel soldiers, like, storming through a school and little kids running out of the classrooms. Yeah. And just that kind of violence. that It's so shocking, and it's... But it's... It isn't punishing... Um, and that's that, and it because it's done with this tenderness, which is crazy, like, and this humanity, which, which, if any, if any topic, if any, you know, if, if any topic deserved to be sensational and mm-hmm. and deserved to be something that you make a loud and angry Oliver Stoney kind of a movie about, like, like civil war. That's in where Africa, everything is spelt out. Civil, in the score yeah, raises. civil civil war in Africa and child soldiers. Like that is the most out like horrible outrage you know th- thing you can imagine that happens in this. And since world. we live in America, we're not like privy to seeing that. Right. And I know. We, absolutely. And that's what's incredible to watch she, in a movie. But she has such a knowledge, and she has just oh yeah, such a familiar because she's from there. But at the same time, because it's a movie about colonialism, like she, it's not her claiming to be. That it's yeah. her, it's her realizing her place, and that the sadness that comes with that, the fact that Isabel Hubbard isn't, isn't from Africa, despite the fact that she lives there and that's her home, and that mm-hmm. land is her land, and that's how she makes a living, that's all she cares about in this world. Like the fact that she's still not, she still does not belong there. Right. Is, she's very stubborn. It's very, it's, she's stubborn, but it's all, it's very sad at the same yeah. time. It's it, but at the same time, it doesn't. It's not a movie about the sad white person in mm-hmm. the middle of a civil war. Oh no, uh, no African no. civil. It's not a. Uh, Ed, I know it's her, not an Ed Zwick movie. I know her ex husband is like you know saying, "Well, I need to save her by selling the plantation or whatever. I need to save her from herself." Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really like an interesting intention for someone to be like, "This is going to piss her off, and I don't care." Because this is what needs to be done, and, and he's kind of right. Like she yeah. is dangerously in denial. Like, oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, people get that way when they're really passionate about where they work, where they live, and they don't want to budge. I, there was a there was a story actually on uh, WFMU with Tom Sharpling. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's which is a really good radio show that takes place in New Jersey, uh, which is recorded in New Jersey, and the mm-hmm. it was when the hurricane hit New Jersey. Um, they were telling oh, a story. Yeah. Uh, the associate producer was telling a story about his friend who lived in a trailer park and would not leave his trailer in, right. when it was three feet of water. Um, oh yeah, like, it's very similar to Beasts of the Southern Wild. You, yeah. get, you get that too in that film, which I think might have a, a little bit in common too, just because of like, I mean, in the movie, it's not really in Beasts of the Southern Wild. It's not necessarily like explicitly trying to say like something like FEMA is coming to. Uh, you know, invade this culture and say, "Hey, you can't live here anymore." I mean, it plays out in that way, but 
at the same time, it's not like they're literally wearing uniforms that say FEMA on them. Uh-huh. But in light of what you know, we know about what happened after Hurricane Katrina, and you it's know, a metaphor. It is, yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, uh, white material is not metaphorical. No, what what is happening is not a metaphor for civil war. What is happening is literally is, is civil, African civil yeah. war. So, but or it could be. I mean, again, like you know, coffee is a really highly profitable. Industry yeah, and market. Coffee, coffee and, was an industry that was ba- built on the back of slavery. Oh yeah, and- most definitely. And it's it's crazy to like you know see a regime come in and storm in and take over. And it's almost like I don't know if she's you know making an anti-capitalist statement by by you know portraying I think, this I, film. And the thing about this the thing about Claire Denise is I think she's just she she understands things are too complicated yeah. to make to say a statement. This could have been an easy statement where. Uh, it could have been uh, maybe like even a falling down kind of movie where at the mm-hmm. end you, the whole movie it's about oh poor Isabella Huppert and then at the end the twist is that no her char- you shouldn't feel sorry for her character right you know the same way that, that that twist sort of happens with Michael Douglas's character where it's sort of playing like righteous white man anger but at the end it sort of changed that around and points a finger at it mm-hmm. it doesn't it's much more complicated than that it yeah, understands it's that it's sad it understands that there is no there's no good things. It understands that despite the fact that her character has privilege, it, it's not she is not happy, and she right. there there's nothing good coming from any of this for anyone involved. But it's not pointing a finger, it's not blaming anyone. The child soldiers who are terror who have killed people in terror, they're children, right? Like she's not, you know, she it's not pointing the finger at them, it's not pointing a finger at you know, it's it's just a horrible situation all around that is a lot of factors, and the fact that she allows herself to say maybe this is more complicated. Then I can just point out in a movie I should do something I should approach it in a different way. Like yeah. I appreciate that because you're still able to be political. You're still able. You're still able to say a lot and make someone feel a lot mm-hmm. about a movie with uh, or about uh, something that's really happening without uh, w- without telling people what the solution is. What it like I mean that's what makes do the right thing so powerful. It's oh, not sure, that, sure, It's sure. not that Spike Lee knows how to fix anything or whose fault it is. Uh, you know, like Spike Lee, one of the things I love about Do the Right Thing is Spike Lee has a lot of empathy for that guy who lived on the brownstone who accidentally stepped on that guy's shoes. Yeah. Like, whether or not he, you know, whether or not gentrification, you know, you know, gentrification is a problem mm-hmm. and he's not pretending it isn't a problem and he's not pretending like that white guy lives in that black neighborhood. He's not pretending that that isn't going to be an issue, but he has empathy for him. Right. And it's, it's kind of a similar Just thing. Just like right? he has empathy for Edward Norton's character in 25th hour, even though he's really fucked up and he's a drug dealer. Yeah. And he's got self-loathing, but well, yeah. it's one of the, when I watch that movie, I'm so like, this is not only a beautiful metaphor and a great great encapsulation of 9-11, but you can still watch it as just like a, a good character study of this guy who's really fucked up. Well, that was one of the, one of the things I love uh, about... Uh, I don't know if it was his review or if it was like a great movies thing he wrote later, but Roger Ebert wrote something about Malcolm X where there's a mm. scene where a white woman runs up to Malcolm X and says, how yeah. can I help? And Malcolm X says, you can't. And, and the scene could have ended there. But instead, uh, you know, Roger Ebert he pointed out like Spike Lee lingers on the hurt of the of the white woman. And how oh, she, sure. you know, like that sort of extra empathy really makes really adds a lot of dimension, and it really makes things more meaningful because it means that you aren't trying to preach to anybody. It mm-hmm. means that you are trying to explore a situation. To me, that's infinitely more valuable. Yeah, I mean, and again, like it's not very explicit in this movie. Yeah. If she's trying to make like. 
you know, uh, an overarching sort of statement about what's going. It's very situational. I think she's just exploring, yeah, rather than uh, again a sense preaching. of discovery. Yeah, of yeah. this world and, and, uh, and unlike and unlike Thirty Five Shots of Rome, I will say that if you're about a bit nervous, this film is very accessible just because it's so tense yeah. and so scary. Um, I was taken aback by the way it starts, though, because. You know, well, yes, it, it it the the narrative is very uh, you know puzzling. It, it breaks chronology sometimes, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes you think there are there are leaps of time that you don't expect, um, you know. But it mostly all takes place over the course of one day, right? Um, Another great strength of the movie, I think. I love movies that take yeah. place over the course of one day. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, I think that's a perfect amount of time for a movie for like a for a hundred minute movie to sort of capture. Oh yeah. Um, Especially when a lot of shit happens in that one day, but in in general, it's like this is exactly how it. it I imagine it. I mean, it's, it, you know, when people when City of God came out and people were sort of you know proclaiming it as like you know kind of like a Goodfellas only in that particular country, uh, it's very easy to watch that movie and see how the youth gets corrupted and sort of thrust into these mm-hmm. environmental uh, clashing and conflict. And I think here, you know, she's there and she wants to stick around and she believes in what she's what she's done in the plantation and I understand her intention. I understand why she'd want to do it. Um, but at the same time, she is oblivious too. Right. And that's really like and that's what difficult to watch. Because... That's what privilege is. Privilege yeah. is being able to be oblivious to to issues because they don't affect you. Right. Right. Um, privilege is being able to say, well, that doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to you, you know, because mm-hmm. you're, and until it's too late. Um, yeah. And, and it's, so it's a fascinating sort of ex- exploration of that kind of privilege, of that kind of, of that, of post colonialism in Africa. It's also just a, a really well made thriller. Yeah. Um, albeit a more, uh, a more impressionistic and strange thriller than, say, No Country for Old Men or whatever, <laughs> but it's still very tense and very ex- exciting movie. Oh, for sure. Um, it's a you know, it, it, there's a lot of stuff at work at White Material, and I I just think it's brilliant. It's one of my favorite movies. I can't ever. wait to watch it again. To yeah. be honest, after it was over, I'm like, that's another movie I'm really looking forward to watching again to see. You know how and it is on, and, and you it. said it's on instant. Yeah. All right. So, what are you guys waiting for? Watch what are you it. doing? Stop listening to this. I I know a lot of I know a lot of my friends on Facebook listen to this podcast. I expect to see a lot of statuses about white material mm-hmm. after and at, not seeing after it. this podcast. I, I want you guys to watch it. I want you guys to talk about it, and because uh, it's great and it's kind of underappreciated. Patrick's being quite demanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah! I just banged my freaking elbow because okay? I'm so excited about this fucking movie. Are you okay, Jim? I'm okay! Right. Speaking of okay, uh, <laughs> I love how I do that. Um, Friday night. It was. Speaking of banging. It was more than okay. Yeah. Um, it's a work of incredible atmospheric intimacy and it is almost like her last tango in Paris. Oh. And, uh, I, but again, it's not. Like even the way she films sex, it's there are a lot of close-ups and a real sense of um, like just sheltering skin in a way. Before but, before I ask what the plot of the movie is, can really you describe the plot? The plot? No, there really okay. isn't a plot. It's it's mostly just like a random encounter in a taxi cab becomes something more, uh-huh. um, and you don't really get a backstory of like, well, this is why they're longing and. Um, you do know that one of them happens to be married, uh, and it's... I imagine that comes as a surprise to the viewer. Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course, of course. Um, 
but like the way she the way she films like a clavicle or an ankle bone or like when they're you know finally um consummating their their lust for one another it's filmed in a way that it, it it's as close to intimacy in a very sensual way without once being explicit and something there's no butter in the ass in this movie like Last Tango in Paris. There's no butter in the ass. Can that be the full quote? Hey, yeah, sure. There's no butter in the ass in this picture. Jim Laskowski. Oh, well, that's what everybody remembers from that Last Tango in Paris. That's but true. This, that's what I remember, Just too. imagine, you know, I mean, if you've seen a Claire Denise movie, yeah. it's pretty much just a one-night encounter um, told, in again, in a very stylish, very inviting way with uh, very... I'd say, like, out of all her movies, there's hardly any dialogue. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, obviously they meet and they have exchanges together, but you know, it's and again, it's not a cautionary tale about casual sex, but it's more about like indulging mm-hmm. and deciding to give in uh, despite you know consequences or maybe never seeing each other again. And I think she really le- it's, it's it's like sometimes it feels kind of drowsy and lackadaisical, but at the same time, you really get a sense of these two longing for each other, even if there's not like a set in stone reason. You know what I kind of wish for? Hmm. I kind of wish uh, there was a way to. I mean, I'm sure there is a way, uh, especially if you say they released those uh, Tinder Sticks uh, box set yeah. of the music they did for movies. I kind of wish there was a way to watch the movies with just the music and no dialogue and no sound. Just because, like, just seeing them play out uh, visually would be really. It would be an interesting exercise. This would be the movie to do that. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, I mean, certainly it's it helps to, you know, hear their uh, vocal intonations and all the things that you come to expect, but it's as close to... <laughs> all the things you come, come to, to expect, expect from, from sex. From, uh, you know, the, the oh thrusts boy. Oh boy. and the moaning. No. Um, I bet this is gratifying her sexually. I expected that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. But it's, again, it's it's got this gritty realism to it um, and a lot gritty. of... Hand, yeah, I think there's more of a grittiness to it. I mean, it's it's tough because like I, I sense her uh, style is very consistent. We we will definitely go on record in calling her an auteur. Uh, here, it it really feels like you're on a night on a town in a you know more uh, impulsive kind of manner, and I think the the filmmaking reflects that. There's a lot more handheld. There's a lot more not necessarily carelessness to the, where, where the camera is placed, but just interesting angles like again there is no long shot there's no you don't see the whole room when they're sleeping together it's very close up but you get that throughout the whole movie um because you're you're sharing these intimate moments with these people and it's it's just just, it really uh got to me as it went along because i think she knows how to capture intimacy Mm -hmm. more than any other no that's a good that's a good that, that that makes me more intrigued about this movie than anything is yeah that is that's true uh yeah and again to watch a sex scene play out in that way was very refreshing uh-huh. because again you're like oh when are you gonna see the tits <laughs> of course that's what i'm always thinking when i watch movies yeah but um it, i was really disappointed <laughs> i never got to see wreck it ralph's tits i know <laughs> <laughs> or Gordy's. Uh, <laughs> although we see a lot of Gordy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, it's again, it's one of those movies that is it's a it's a visual um, experience, and you can't really describe it in words at times because it's exactly like um, 
I know that Mike Figgis once put out a movie called One Night Stand, I want to say, with Wesley Snipes. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember like thinking, this movie should be told much better. Because I think you can capture this impulsivity between two people having a one-night stand without resorting to dramatic um, conventions of like, oh no, we find out he's married and now there's consequences. Or, oh no, she's a psychopath and she's stalking him. Yeah, you know. like dressed to kill. Yeah. Or she, <laughs> she reads the note, you have AIDS. What? <laughs> you know what? Sometimes fucking is just fucking. Yeah. And it doesn't have to have this romantic meaning behind it. Uh-huh. And I think this movie really captures it beautifully in a way that never once feels exploitive or awkward it's it's really it feels natural it's a yep. very natural experience so highly recommend friday night awesome i saw and then you can watch friday night lights mm-hmm. and then uh and then you can watch lights saturday night live saturday night live thank you <laughs> <laughs> nothing oh man i was like all right brain don't fail me now my brain's like i'm sorry what i wasn't paying attention <laughs> um i watched Beau Travail. Which oh is, yeah! Uh, her, Tell me about uh, it. Very critically acclaimed film that came out in 1999. It has Dennis Levant, our mm. favorite from. Uh, Holy I think, I think all, all cinephiles now are huge fans of Dennis. I, yeah. I hope Dennis Levant goes on to have a uh, um, motherfucker. What is his name uh, from uh, Glorious Bastards? Oh, um, Michael Fassbender. No, and Michael. No, in Glorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Oh, um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, Christoph Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I like how I couldn't remember the name, but then when you paused and you couldn't think of it, I got so mad at you just now. I know. <laughs> A lot of people get mad at me with my long pauses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, uh, so I, I hope Dennis Levant has kind of a Christoph Waltz career now, because he's great in this, and he's great in Holy Motors. This is sort of a, a retelling of Billy Budd, a uh, sto- story by Herman Melville, which is one hmm. I wasn't familiar with, but is basically uh, a story about a man in in the service um, who uh, gets jealous when another sailor in the in the in the book? It's another sailor uh, finds the fancy of his superior, and then he gets jealous and he tries to off that sailor. Right. And this it in this they're in the French uh, they're the French Foreign Legion. They're legionnaires, and it's captivating. Uh, the way you you talked about in Friday Night, her shooting like uh, clavicles and ankle bone, like yeah. the. The physic, the physicality of all the legionnaires in this film is—it's the first time I've ever actually seen. Like, there are a lot of war movies that try to, you know, that focus on sort of the breaking down psychologically of oh, soldiers sure. and the, like. This is the first time I ever saw a beauty in in soldiers, uh, like the way they navigate an obstacle course early on in the film. Um, it's so intense and so physical and just amazing, and it blows your mind how how fit these people are. And it's you know it's not as if I've never seen a professional athlete or anything, but just seeing just the way she films it and stuff makes it so physical. Um, and again, it's a lot. It's a film with a lot of spaces. It's the plot. The actual plot is not um, super important. It goes back and forth. Between, yeah, just keep that in mind for all her movies, pretty much, except for White Material, I guess. White, yeah, White Material. Is, I oh yeah yeah white material the sin not necessarily the quote unquote plot which is scene B happens yeah. and then cause and effect but more the scenario of white material is very important mm-hmm. um, but this is it's more oh just sorry about, but speaking of delayed response yeah I was trying to think of Wong Kar Wai Wong Kar Wai earlier yeah like I was thinking of especially for Friday night a closest comparison would be in the mood for love in the mood for love is is also very elliptical yeah and there's a lot of moments in a mood for love that remind me of 
35 shots around where it's you don't exactly know where in their relationship they are and you don't know mm-hmm. how much time has passed in between any given scene right um, and you don't know if they've had sex or not and you like you don't know you you don't exactly know what's going on it's all unspoken that's that's, that's really I, I, I thought I did think about in the mood for love yeah. well, I, I hadn't thought like it took me a while to get there but yeah that's I'm glad fine. I'm glad I got there but <laughs> um but uh Beau Travail is just it's sort of it's almost kind of like a less pointed because again, again, Jarhead kind of hits you over the head with it. But Jarhead's all about sort of the waiting of war and how it's. Yeah, I need to rewatch that. I like Jarhead. I yeah. actually quite like Jarhead. I think Jarhead's also another physical movie. I mean, Jarhead's also, Jarhead's just a movie where you get to see like a lot of muscly men naked for a lot of time, mm. so it's pretty great. But, um, <laughs> but, but like, but like Jarhead's also very physical and just about sort of people building themselves up. But it's also a little more like pointed war movie. This is what we're saying. Yeah. Whereas this is just sort of a meditation. Again, more of a tone poem. Um, Don't that, they literally say, "What are we doing here?" Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> all our, all of our fathers had wars to be proud of. What's this war like? You yeah. Know, like, like, yeah, it's like mm, I wonder what this is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, she, but Denise all, like always avoids that yeah. heavy handedness and, not, and not sentimentality. Just, not just heavy handedness; she'll avoid plot elements. Like yeah. she'll avoid yeah. exposition. Yeah. Um, and so, Beau Travel is about you know French Foreign Legion in West Africa during peacetime mm-hmm. so it's just them training and it's just about the life it's not about war um, which which again helps uh, make it not be distracted by those kinds of statements uh, is that she doesn't have to deal with the actual war right. and uh, it's again like like a lot of her films and I don't think we've mentioned this at this point what I, another thing I love about the films is they're very multicultural which, oh, yeah. which reflects France which is a very French thing which is just there's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people from different places in Europe, a lot of uh, black people, because right. like, for all the French colonization, um, French France is a, was a very hot destination, especially in the early 20th century, for for sort of, you know, uh, black jazz musicians and just all sorts. So uh, France is a, a, a very interesting melting pot. And because it's the French Foreign Legion, that is a... I, and I, I had to look. I looked up the French Foreign Legion on Wikipedia to get more context. And mm-hmm. so, forgive me if I'm, I'm misremembering this, but it's basically it's the art. It's the part of the armed forces that is open to uh, foreigners living in France. So it's so there's so it's very again very multicultural and interesting in that uh, regard. Yeah. Um. So I like that about the movie. I like I like that it's just very dedicated. Dennis Levant again is. Just brilliant actor. I keep waiting for you um, to say Dennis Leary for yeah, some reason. Dennis, Dennis Leary is just a brilliant actor. <laughs> At one point, he smokes really angrily. It's amazing. Actually, no. Okay, so the ending. Uh, so you know the story. I already told you what happened. It's in the story. It's a very simple story, which is he he gets jealous. Uh, he tries to do something to harm, and then eventually he gets caught and he gets court martialed. I'm not I'm not spoiling anything. I promise. I promise you. Um, it's not that kind of movie. Um, also, it's. It takes like it has cuts from the Billy Bud uh, from the Billy Bud opera. So anyone, and that's a very well known kind of story. It was made into opera. It was made into a play. So uh, it, Claire Denise is not trying to surprise anybody by what happens. Um, sure, just how it happens. But yeah, she's definitely very, interested in that. At how. the very end, there's a dance scene where he's alone in like a. It seems like a dance club, but there's no one else there, and he's just him up against a mirror with some lights, and he's listening to Corona's uh, "Rhythm of the Night," which is it's that house song. that's like this yeah. is the rhythm of the night. Yeah. Da, da, da. Okay, so you know that song, and he and he's sort of smoking, like kind of like Dennis Leary. He's kind of smoking angrily or whatever, <laughs> but then he starts dancing, and it's 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 very much like feels like a scene that could have happened in Holy Motors. Oh, nice. Where it's just it's kind of uh, expressionist. You don't know if it's actually happening or if it's mm-hmm. a metaphor for mm-hmm. 
the whole film up to that point because there's no one else in the club there's no reason there's there's club scenes before but they've all been crowded and they all took place in Africa and this is this looks more like a post-Africa sort of thing but the dancing he does is incredible I posted this on our this is what I'll I posted on our website yeah. I posted a video of it um, it is so physical and crazy and it's a very Holy Motors-esque moment which, it was, which I thought was pretty great because that was how I know Dennis Levon um, so oh, of course Beau Travel, pretty good and I'm, I'm excited to see her other films uh, I really want to see Chocolat which is the yeah. film that which is probably her most autobiographical film all takes place in West Africa right um, The Intruder is another one I'm interested that in that apparently is her strangest sort of most uh, surreal metaphorical oh, yeah okay yeah, and I I, I, I posted movie? on I posted on Facebook that I'm like I don't know if I really want to sit through trouble every I wish I could have, but um, I just I, I I cringe at the sight of Vincent Gallo. Oh really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean I've seen both of his movies, but um, I was kind of indifferent to them both yeah. of them. Like, and I'm kind of surprised just because like, I thought you liked Buffalo '66. Is that not you? Uh, I know Carly, I know I know my girlfriend Carly really likes it. I thought you were the other person like that. She, no. I'm in the middle. I mean, okay. I've only seen it the one time, so it, I'm willing I, to rewatch it more than was, while, she, while she was watching it, I was on my computer, so I don't count it as I don't count myself as having seen it. Yeah, but it looks interesting. But Trouble Every Day is like her cannibal sex movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. with lots of blood and fucking. Yeah, which is how it's her thirst. It should be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's her thirst. Um, so I'm really excited to explore Claire Denise in the future. And again, I do want to say. If whenever she has a new movie coming out, try if I mean her films aren't huge in America, so you it might be hard to find get into it in theaters. But if you can see them in theaters, because not not for the usual reasons of oh the you know it's spectacle or necessarily her cinematography is like not the same reasons you wanted to see like the master and seventy millimeter in, in theaters mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's just because her films are so hypnotic and they're so based on transporting you to different places that that it's that I think being in a darkened theater like really helps that. Well, apparently she has a new movie coming out this year called The Bastards. I wish I could read more about it, but it's all in French. Yeah. And I don't know no French. Well, if if it's coming out this year then we'll then if it gets an American release we'll probably see it in like 2014. That's yeah. what happened with yeah, uh, White yeah, Material yeah, yeah. was like a 2010 movie that was released in America in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and I like her her movies are like this sort of Deep, like reflective connect connection mm-hmm. and collection of moments, and most of them are pretty sublime. And again, I mean, like this isn't these aren't the kind of movies that you should pause and come back to and like yeah, just these, let it wash are, over you. You really have to you really have to give yourself to them. Uh, yeah. They they do take some effort. Yeah, and but prepare yourself ahead of time because they're not very straightforward. Like white material is not Hotel Rwanda, you no. know. So I mean, it, it, she certainly has those kind of shock and awe moments, but. They're, that some of them are really downplayed. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's a really interesting because she doesn't, to want to, she doesn't want to make a spectacle and sensationalize and yeah. like she. It's almost as if she's trying to avoid Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost I as if she that. got an Academy Award, she'd be very disappointed in herself. But, she's also a uh, she's a film professor in uh, Sweden, I believe, which is interesting about. Oh, so cool. she's definitely like makes kind of you know thoughtful and instinctual kind of movies. Save up some money, Patrick. Get get your ass over there and take a class. Yeah, get your ass to Sweden. <laughs> Total Recall. Um, so, uh, Jim, very what are riveting, your, very what are riveting your, films. Yeah, absolutely. Love Claire Denise, uh, and I always love white 
white material and was unsure about 35 shots of Rome, I'm glad I went back and I'm, I hope yeah. to search more in the future. What are your fi- three favorite? Oh, I think right now. What, rank the three films The that three you films saw. that I saw. Yeah, and I, I definitely plan to see more. I, I like to do that in the summer, like even come back to the podcast and be like, hey, I saw this Joseph Losey movie, right? Yeah, I yeah. saw this movie and, uh, you know, like filmmakers that we've covered on the show but just haven't got a chance to catch up with their filmography. It'd be nice to just once in a while talk about mm-hmm. uh, one movie in particular. <laughs> this show takes a lot of effort, though. Oh, it yeah, be hard I know. To fit other movies in. It is, it is. Like, I still haven't seen Oz the Great and Powerful, and Sam Raimi's one of my favorite directors. Mm. <laughs> Michelle Williams is in it. You know you know what I have to... I have to follow my pattern. Yeah, yeah. Follow. You have to go and watch a movie that is a fake, did like, CGI camera running around a fake thing, and it's, oh, it's Sam Raimi because it's zooming. No, it's not Sam Raimi! What made Sam Raimi movies good is that the cameras were physical! <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people have that argument, but some people have defended it. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. It might yeah. be great. Um, do not look great. My top three are White Material, yeah. Friday Night, and 35 Shots of Rum. I'm going to go with White Material, Beau Travail, and 35 Shots of Rum. Okay. And I think 35 Shots of Rum is very good, and I think people should see it. Yeah, I agree. And Completely. White Material is on instance of see that shit. Yeah, definitely make that a priority, folks. Uh-huh. Patrick, um, I think we're doing a very interesting filmmaker next week. Yeah, Michael and, or In a couple weeks. And uh, Michael Haneke... We, I think, the, well, at least the next director will be a little bit more light and fun. Because, <laughs> yeah, like, we've got yeah, a lot good. of depressing oh, yeah. films to talk about. Um, but I've I've seen no, funny games. Yeah, no, I'm glad after uh, emotionally exhausting directors like John Cassavetes and uh, Claire Denise, we get to go with someone light and bubbly like Michael fucking Haneke. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I just watched The White Ribbon, and it's just a laugh fest. God, did I do this on purpose to torture us? Maybe. It's possible. Um, Who I've comes s- after Michael Haneke? Kevin Reynolds. With my buddy Nick DiGiulio. Oh, nice. We get to see Waterworld. Yeah. Okay, that, won't be, that won't be depressing. It'll be fun. <laughs> I'm going to love Waterworld. You better. Waterworld is basically the white material of the city. <laughs> <laughs> it's white material only with Kevin Costner. That's great. Uh, it's actually it's actually um, yellow material that he, that he drinks ugh. in that movie. He drinks, he drinks, he drinks his refined urine. Mm. Yeah. He, he purifies it. Ooh. Um... Yeah, so I mean, I've seen I've seen Funny Games and The uh, Piano Teacher and Cachet. I've I think only that's seen I... the two Funny Games movies. Mm-hmm. I like the original a little better, but obviously the point of the remake is that it's a remake. It's it's very much a Gus Van Zandt psycho sort of a thing. Ah, yes, I do like the cast. I just in think the I just think, I just think I like the cast in the remake. I think the acting's a little better in the original. Yeah, um, or, especially by the two guys. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it just might be the fact that. Uh, it could be just it's in a foreign language and therefore anything that's kind of cheesy mm-hmm. like there's a little bit in the remake where it's a little cheesy and on the nose and a little winky yeah. a little too like in the wrong way I mean obviously that whole movie is winking at the audience like that's the whole point of the movie is that it's very postmodern but uh, that that didn't feel as as silly to me uh, in yeah. the original so we have to catch up with some of his earlier films because I'm very interested in them and I've heard a lot about like Code Unknown and Benny's video mm-hmm. and so it's gonna be cool. I think uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have a good time with uh, recurring guest Kurt Halfyard. Yeah, as the cinecast. Buckle down. Yeah, get ready for a three and a half hour epic. Yeah. So sometimes we we podcast longer than the actual movie's running time. Yeah. Well, we talk about more than one movie. That's true. I bet our Buster Keaton podcast. <laughs> no, but even the Buster Keaton podcast, we had a what we watched. Yeah. I I don't think there's any podcasts we have that are longer than the movies that we discuss. I think that's we always discuss, right. that, that's the, that's the director's club promise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. 
Well, thanks everybody for listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Right, send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm at Instant Jim on Twitter and Letterboxd. I am at Patrick Rapal on Twitter, and you can look at my viewing blog, uh, viewing journal at uh, Martha Marcy Nash and Young.wordpress.com. Yeah. And as uh, we said earlier, give uh, the Movie Pods app a try over on iTunes as yeah, well. Yeah, it's exciting. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, we got we got we got something coming for you uh, April first. Oh, I, we do. Yeah, I. You'll hear about it on April first. Uh, we let's just say you got two things coming to you. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Judas Priest style. You got another thing coming. Hmm. Uh-huh. I just hope Manx isn't coming back. Oh no, maybe. Okay. Look, he's worried. a dear friend of mine. I'm a little worried. He's a former mentor. Mm, I don't know. Cult leader. Okay. Uh, I, I, I hope we build a big mythology. That would be so much fun. <laughs> the Director's Club mythology. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everything's linked on our Wicca, Wikipedia yeah. page. Patrick, Patrick Apold, the stunt driver. <laughs> Jim, the guy who just loves Amber Tamlin. That's all I'm going to be known for yeah. for the rest of my life. That's Put that on my tomb. Yeah, that's what's going to be great. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, until then, see you next time. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bastards. Oh, um, Michael Fassbender? No, and Michael, no, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Oh, um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, Christoph Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I like how I couldn't remember the name, but then when you paused and you couldn't think of it, I got so mad at you just now. I know. <laughs> A lot of people get mad at me with my long pauses. <laughs> oh, boy.